Yeah, uh, we do have Bob Emenegger on the line. Let's do the uh, intro here. Let's uh, turn to. Here we go. It's not playing. Amazing. It'd be nice if I actually turned the volume up on the thing with the music, wouldn't it? This is what you pay for with a free show. <laughs> Here we go. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? swearing I'm going to change that uh, intro music, intro stuff. I'm not going to, I don't know. I haven't done it yet. Let's fade that down. Uh, it's Roddy Mysterioso back here after a long hiatus of not having any guests on. And I wanted to have another guest on. And the first person I thought of, and I'm not kidding, Bob, it was Bob Emenegger. Can you hear me there? Yeah, I was, I'm using my real voice this time. Yeah, well, there were there were problems with the last show where people said that's not Bob's real voice. I've heard him speak, and that is not his real voice. So, uh, I save it for a real good occasion. <laughs> uh, if people do not know who Bob Emenegger is and they're listening to this program, they probably shouldn't be listening to this program. But he, <laughs> he's best known amongst people in this audience for a 1974, is that right, Bob, film called UFOs? Yeah, yeah past the first one, yeah. Yeah, Past, Present, and Future. Uh, and we will talk about that a bit. We talked about it in the last time he was on, but um, I can't remember what we talked about, and neither of us can be bothered to go back and listen to what we talked about. So we may repeat yeah. ourselves like old people, which is fine. Well, no, you know, after all, we did a few programs after that. There was a cover-up live from Washington, D.C., which we hashed through the same thing, only uh, with some of the principals in that program. That was a, You remember that show, I'm sure. Yes. Yes, of course. In fact, the only thing that was so horrible about it was somebody piped in canned music throughout the whole thing, and I thought that was kind of, that was a sort of a detraction, but that's the way I felt. Yeah, well, that and having everybody read off of cue cards and having... Um, yes, that yeah. was awful. <laughs> yeah, 
These are your own words, but you're going to repeat them exactly as we have recorded them so there are absolutely no mistakes and no surprises. And I I bet, I mean, I, I know the um, producer, uh, Michael Seligman, was that was his name? Yes, oh, God, yes. Yeah. You know that, as I found out, he was also worked for, as I did, gray advertising in the New York office, putting together shows uh, for no other reason than to make money, you know. As you remember, it wasn't that he was interested in subjects. He just, uh, he was a, sort of a money guy. Yeah. Yeah, and he was apparently, I've heard from more than one person, kind of deathly afraid through the whole thing that the wrong thing was going to be said or he would say the wrong thing um, and reveal some government thing he wasn't supposed to or something would hor- go horribly wrong during the show and somebody would go off the script and go nuts. So that's why they had the uh, cue cards. Well, you know, that's why I already told you, you remember this, but when I was interviewed with Michael, you know, what was the host's name now again? Uh, the guy from MASH. Um, yeah. Mike, uh, Mike, Mike Farrell. Mike Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. I remember because I knew what Selegman was up to. So everybody was reading dutifully the cue cards that were projected on a screen in front of you. You know, you... We weren't even looking at the host. We were looking at the this, our teleprompters. Yeah. And I, I told you this before, which amused me anyway, is when his lead in line to me was, Bob, I, that day when that craft came in at Holloman Air Force Base, do you remember? And I he said, would you tell us? And I, I said, yes. This craft landed and the door opened and out walked Bigfoot. And he <laughs> screamed. He said... He stopped everything and said, read, read the teleprompter. And it just tickled me that he just tickled me. That it was so stupid. But everybody was sort of stumbling over their own words. In fact, those were not necessarily our own words. We had told, the, I guess, one of his writers what everything was, and then they put it on the teleprompter, and it was so unnatural. I mean, I, I was reading as if this was somebody else's story. Well... Anyway, that's past history, as you remember. Yeah, I remember the main thing about he he would say, you knew it was for money that he was doing it. He would say, and uh, now we're, if you've ever wanted to see a UFO, call 1-800-whatever-it-was. Yeah, yeah, if yeah. You, and on and on. <laughs> and each and people call were will charged. cost you $1. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. well, I think we went over that once. It was just sort of stuck in my mind. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, we probably have gone over it. And this was a show, if people don't know, and I'm sure you do if you're listening, called UFO Cover-Up Live, which aired in October of 1989, was it, or 88? Yes, yeah, which seems like not a long time ago, but it was. No, 88. Oh, it was 88. Uh, Bob, in the studio with me is my friend Walter Bosley, who's a former AFOSI um, agent. Oh really? Yes. He might he might want to ask you something at some point. He can <laughs> ask me anything. Okay. <laughs> Let it go. All right. Uh now now back to where we were, wherever it was, even if it was nineteen eighty nine, which was not a bad year. No, not at all. I remember I didn't see that show. I had to have well, time tape it. Oh go ahead, the, Walter. The, the reason the reason I remember it was nineteen ninety nineteen eighty eight specifically was um by October of eighty nine I was in the Baltimore area studying Russian for the FBI and I distinctly remember watching the special while I was still 
while I was still in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that so it was October of 88. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I remember because it was near my birthday, so that's how... Well, yours too, Walter. His, his birthday's yes. like three weeks before me. Uh, Walter, what are you doing? Are you sitting in the studio with uh, our friend or yes, somewhere else? Yes, I am. Else? And I'm, I'm listening because you two guys know way more about the topics we'll be discussing than I do. Oh, and that's yeah, why Walter, I hang out with guys like Greg and like because I get to meet people like you that I've I've uh, you know seen your stuff and heard your name for years and so it's uh, you know Bob um, what I found out after I met Walter is he was at a UFO convention in San Diego in the 1990s um, following Russian people around to make sure they weren't vacuuming up uh, defense secrets. Oh, come on, really? Yeah, yeah. He's 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 told me that, and I do remember the Russian people there. I actually bought books from them. Well, you know, we Alan Sandler invited me over to his house one night, and we had two Soviet Soviets, uh, Soviet film people, there. Just the two of them, me, my wife, and his wife. And I know I think the DIA or wanted to put a, a listening device in <laughs> to see what they were talking about, but they were. You know, we didn't talk very much. The only thing that was sort of strange is they kept saying something about, well, we never went to the moon or something, which was sort of a subject. I don't know why they even brought it up. But they, in fact, we entertained a Soviet guy when we were shooting some of our science fiction films. He followed us around. He was in charge, I think it was called, of North American Affairs. And we showed him a great time. I mean, he, he, in fact, Spielberg kind of, Annie, kind of got a crush on him or something. And I know they met back in New York. And I think the Soviets sent, when he found out what he was into, sent him back to uh, to Russia. I don't know what the heck happened between Annie and that guy. But then we we gave him such a good time. You know, he went to some of the shoots, and and then he wrote this article about North American affairs in which he really trounced our democratic system. And I thought, God, why did he do that? Maybe that was just his job, that he had to slant whatever it was in a, not a great favorable light. Oh, of but course, I do of course that. it was his job, yeah. You know, that, sorry, that, that, of course that was his job, you know, I mean... Uh, why, when was this? You said in the seventies. No, that was. This must have been. That was way after we did the show. So it must have been close to the end of the seventies, maybe the beginning of the eighties. Oh, okay. Well, that was still heavy uh, Cold War. Yeah, and you know there were. I don't know. It's the games that everybody seems to play. I, maybe I shouldn't say that. They're probably a serious subject. But well, generally, never... if they're if they're associated with the Russian government and what they're actually doing, um, in order to stay out of trouble with their political officers, at some point they have to trash us, even if they enjoyed their time here and they actually love it here. <laughs> they have to. It it's kind of it's kind of like really, their bona fides. They, they had so much fun and they laughing and scratching and in fact. I just remembered something which is very silly. <laughs> we were sitting in Alan's studio. Yeah. The, the two Soviet guys and me and Alan and I don't know somebody else. And I said, I said, "Are you really a pinko?" And I thought, <laughs> "Why did I say that?" He just He looked at me and it was kind of like, "Huh?" 
I think it was just for the amusement of people. Or we used to call him, didn't we call him a pinko who was leaning toward the Soviets or something? <laughs> you actually said that to a Russian? He had no idea what you were talking about, huh? I don't think he knew what I mean. But I, no, I don't think he knew because the other people, he just sort of looked at me like, what? I thought it was kind of funny. It was like an inside joke, you know. <laughs> hey, you. Hey, you Soviet pinko. <laughs> Uh, how did the, you know, I don't know if we did talk about this. How did the film come about? The first film, I guess you had been involved in more than one UFO type film, but the first well, one. Well, no, that, I really that wasn't. That, the first one, the first one, I didn't even necessarily believe in UFOs. If you remember back, the way it came about was that Alan was asked to do uh, a film on what for the Department of Defense on uh, some of their guys in the submarine corps, a film that would determine whether they felt they may have a problem with alcohol. So that was when Rod Serling, we hired him to do this thing. And, you know, the old 20 questions, do you feel like you need a drink? And, and it was really something that the, they wanted, the Department of Defense. So that was the first interchange with the DOD that I had. And then when the space shuttle came along, which isn't DOD, but um, we were talking about ways to sell it at how little it really costs the public, two cents on every dollar in your taxes or something like that. And that really, we never quite made that that commercial, but so that was the second time that we worked with people in that area. Mm -hmm. And then, then the next time you know that one day Alan said, why don't you go out to Norton Air Force Base with me and and we'll talk about subjects that might put the Department of Defense in a better light, like their R&D projects and all. So I went out to Norton. By the way, as you know, I was at Norton Air Force Base years before when I was uh, in the Air Force Reserve for a, oh, 11 months. I was on duty there. At that time... <laughs> You know, I didn't think about anything about the military. I just was in the Air Force Reserve and got activated. So I was familiar with Norton. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Alan and I went in and met with the, uh, the the motion picture or media group. And they started, I said, well, why don't we look into things that might put the Department of Defense in a better light, like... Things like uh, maybe we could pull up the Merrimack with the Navy, which you know was possible yeah. to do, and and then we were we saw a lot of the R and D projects. I remember Dava. I think they referred to it. No, no, not not, not Dava. It was a, it changed names, but it was uh, APRO or Advanced Research Projects in Maryland. Yeah, and we went there and wa watched a young a young uh, researcher. And he didn't want to, by the way, none of these people really wanted to talk to us. We always had a major with us who would say, come on, it's all right. You talk to them. This is the one where the beginning of where he was, he would think of a word. And across the room, I'd say about 15 feet away was a computer. And it would print out the word that he was thinking, which is not unusual now. But back then, that seemed like that was the beginning of the ability to uh, a thought projection that would register on a computer. 
and they got up to about five or six words at that time. But I was told that that was used for pilots eventually, where they would think of, of something like, you know, open the Bombay doors. I don't know what they, what right. language, what would they say? Did you try it? Did, did you did you try it, or did just somebody just sh- say that's? Oh the no, word? no, he he was demonstrating it for us, and then I realized that it was later used, and I probably won't get this correct. But in the use of where people would think if they had a, uh, an arm that was really a prosthesis arm, they, they would think like you'd mentally grab something and it would motivate the muscles or whatever it was to do what they thought. So that was the beginning of all of this way of thinking. In fact, you know, they're, they're scanning the brain now and being able to... Uh, take a picture of a, a scissor or a hammer or whatnot and watch where this the person's under the you know the MRI. Uh, yeah, which areas light up? Yes, the areas that light up. So I we've traveled down that path, so I think they're probably pretty well along now. That was in 72, so, hmm. and it was used for pilots. And at least that's what I was told it was used for at that time. And then we saw a lot of the, you know, research uh laser research and and i didn't think anything so eventually we put together all the wonderful things the department of defense was doing and then we were back at norton and that's when paul shardle put us in a room i think this part you know we went into a clean room out there clean room being there's a studio out there that the CIA does their training films in. I don't know if they still, no, no, I think they closed Norton down by now. And, uh, they would, uh, well, anyway, that's where they said, what would you think if we told you we had a landing at Holloman air force base and it had been filmed. And that was the beginning of where I was scratching my head. As I've told you, I'm going, say, say that again. What? He said, no, no, you, bury that under all your other research like DARPA and all of these other projects and uh, just pursue it but don't make a fuss about it so so I really I was really I didn't believe in UFOs I just thought I didn't even think about them but they we began a you know a communication with the with the Pentagon we went back there uh, I remember going there and not signing in. Plausible denial, I think, is what it's called. And then we were stopped by, not stopped by, but we were asked to go to a little small room with guys in dark suits who began ranting about the fact that we were bringing up the UFO subjects. They didn't want to do that. They said that just causes havoc with us, people phoning in and our phone lines. We don't want to tie them up with people asking about UFOs. Then Alan, I think I told you, had the sense to say, hey, you know, you invited us here. And they went, oh, okay. Then we went upstairs and met Colonel Coleman, and that was the beginning. It was the beginning. Uh, why do you think they uh, even brought that subject up with you? I'm sorry, how say it again? Why do you think they even brought that subject up with you in the first place and then and then took you somewhere where they complained about it? Oh, well, the guys that complained had nothing to do with instigating the project. They were with the, I guess, the local press, the press for the 
Pentagon, and they uh, wanted to know. I think they were curious, like, "What are you? What are you guys up to?" And then we said, "Well, we're we're a guest here." And then then I, we went up to Colonel Coleman's office, as I've told you. And I, I'm repeating myself, but you already know this that we were read the riot act about you know coming across information that is sensitive and national security stuff and that we shouldn't be getting into it and he was implying that ufos could be that area i said in fact if you know some things and you can be and you talk about them you could be put in prison and fined or something you know it was like wow what what is this went in the side of his office and then he closed the door and said well look and you probably know this because I saw it in the news just very recently again. He beat Coleman said, well, I pursued a UFO over Alabama and a B-25 with a seven-man crew. Now, he repeated that in Las Vegas just last week. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what that incident was back there, but Bob Friend was there and Coleman and, and John Alexander. Yeah. And that guy with a bad British accent who's... You mean the British right guy with the bad British accent, Nick Pope? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what he really knows, but he certainly is in the whole thing with his accent and all. <laughs> well, he did, he, he did work for the Ministry of Defense over there, tending the desk that answered queries about UFOs. Yeah, well... Partially. Yeah, and I, yeah. So anyway, and then we were off and running, and you already know the rest. We we uh, pursued, well, we talked about, and your friend is probably bored with this, but we talked about, I knew that they'd had over two or 3,000 cases that they had determined were, you know, unidentified, no, not unidentified, that they could, they had identified them. And I not to tell you the truth, I did not know that much about UFOs to ask the right questions. I said, well, what about the ones that were un, unresolved that you didn't know the answer to what it was? He said, I said, what, well, I'd like to concentrate on those because they're much more interesting. And they agreed. You know, we didn't go back over solved cases except for maybe Mantell. Do you remember that one, the early one? Early? Yeah, yeah. So we, we kind of brushed over that, but then Bob Friend brought up a few that were pretty interesting that the CIA and the Naval Intelligence were, were involved with. So my conclusion was they've, they've experimented with the telepathic communication. In fact, you know, I'm jumping around now. You know the rest of the story anyway. But, you know, I, we made a presentation maybe four or five months ago to DOD. And I wanted to talk about the protocol. And I use the example of, say, one day, um, something is going to come in at North American Air, at North American Air Defense, NORAD, and you're going to track it down. You're going to follow it. And somehow you're going to realize that they're not a threat and you guide them down to an air base. And then I said, now, what I wanted them to talk about was the protocol from here on. I know they would incarcerate them for uh, maybe one, I don't know how many days or hours, because just what, that's what we do with our astronauts. 
somebody comes back from space. Quarantine. We don't just let them. Go ahead. Uh, quarantine. Quarantine. That's right. Yeah. Quarantine for a number of hours to see that they're not bringing anything back. And that's what apparently would be one of the first steps that we would do with whoever it was would quarantine them for a while. And then the next question, which fascinates me, is how do we communicate? And I asked Coleman, I said, have you, have you guys ever experimented along those lines? And he said, we did a lot of work on communication, telepathic. And he said it just never proved to be uh, uh, complete, like 100%. I guess it, it, it worked to a degree, but not enough. So the question I have is, how are we going to communicate with these people? I know that there are people who say they've talked to aliens before, and I don't know what language they were using, but I, I, I can't imagine. I don't know if telepa- tele- telepathy is going to be the way they're going to do it. But we don't have it down to a scientific you know, Nat's ass kind of a thing. So I don't know how, how they're going to communicate. So what like you, Burroughs... Go ahead. I'm thinking that Burroughs was getting close. John Burroughs and, and his uh, the two guys in Bentwater, I thought they came as close to having some sort of a communication, but I don't know whatever became of that. I hadn't even heard about that. I, I, no, I think I have heard about that. What, what, what are you referring Bentwater. to there? Oh, yeah. Oh, you it mean during the during the, uh, the during the incident itself? Yes, the, those guys went. Holt, Holt was involved in it. Yeah. In fact, those Holt, Holt and Burroughs. I'm not sure if that Burroughs was there, but Holt was talking, and that was part of that same group. I think that talked in talked in Las Vegas. So he had firsthand knowledge of it. Man, I to me, that's an outstanding example of where they cannot deny the existence of a craft landing. And, you know, they ran their hands over the surface. And it wasn't Burroughs, but the other one, um, I, I'll think of his name, I suppose, in a minute, the, the older of the two, who was so fascinated, he said that he, he when he was running his hands over, he started getting ones and dashes, ones and zeros, you know, uh, uh, which he kept track of, all of these zero, zero, one, zero, one, zero, zero, one. He, he was trying to figure out what, it, what kind of a code it was, and nobody seemed to be able to, to figure it out. <clears throat> yeah, I've never gotten it, it, much into that. Well, I read the Peter Robbins book years ago. And then I heard the uh, uh, a few months ago there was more information about it uh, of the nature you had said, and then somebody had said that it was had to do with some sort of um, military psychological experiment where they could create basically create matter in, uh, or arrange it so that it would look as if the whatever they wanted it to look like. Um, I'll tell you something along those lines. I, I've been talking to Bob Friend on and off. You know, you know Bob is out on the West Coast. Oh, I didn't know that. He's, he's the vice president, uh, senior vice president for uh, for uh, a large company that does missile guidance systems. He's still involved in that kind of stuff. R- Robert Stanford Friend's MU. A, uh, oh, okay. Have you heard of Have you heard of Stanford MU? Uh, MU, maybe it's. 
uh, is it part of the uh, uh, SRI, or is it uh, associated with Stanford in any way? I think it, I don't know. It's just that's the name of the company, okay. Stanford Bar- Mu, which apparently is the name of one of the early what people who was in politics and and in the same Stanford though. You know, yeah. the Stanford was named after. Oh, okay. But yesterday I was talking to Bob about it, and. He was saying, he said, well, you know, there are things that maybe people don't know, but they do experiment with GIs. And he said something I never heard before. Maybe I'm misquoting him. He was involved in, well, first of all, back back up and say, Bob was head of Project Blue Book. Yeah. Uh, and he also, he was, a, he's an astrophysicist. He was he- one of the heads of... Uh, the intelligence group. He's a really a smart man and a very gentle guy. Mm-hmm. He was uh, one of those Muskegee airmen, also. He was. Yes. He was experimented I did, on. I, no, he was one of the P thirty eight guys that flew with all that black group yeah, of yeah I Tuskegee air, airmen. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of them. So he he grew up as a pilot. So he knew. And I just—he's a very soft-spoken guy, and just always fun to hear what he has to say. Uh-huh. He was talking about experiments that were done, and I hope I'm not telling stories out of school. But I, <laughs> I mentioned about bent water and the guys seeing a craft and the whole thing, and he said, "You know that we have experimented by taking a vehicle and running it through a certain area, if I am I'm understood him right." which would release a certain kind of hallucinogenic gas just to see how it affected those people who were witness to some experiment. I, I, God, I don't know. I, I was very surprised to hear him say that. He didn't elaborate on it, but I really wanted to follow up on that. In yeah, other words, I'd psychological follow up on it too. Stuff, pardon? I would follow up on it, too. I've, I've heard of such things, but I didn't know it was still going on or how far it had gotten. Well, that, this must have been a while back, and he said he, it could have been during the Bentwater thing. But that's very strange that you would play tricks or games with your guys, you know? Well, it's not but like I there's a history of that not, you know, of them being careful and not, not doing that. It's been done many, 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 many times, and you know, not the least of which is Tuskegee and any of the atomic yeah. tests where they didn't quite know what was going on but still exposed all those people to it. Yeah, I, uh, Bob Friend, I remember him also. I was once talking about, you know, he's a very genuine and a gentle, sweet man. I don't think he would do anything to harm anybody. But I remember talking to him once about, in San Francisco, how they had spread a uh, a non-active virus over the Golden Gate area. Yes, that actually happened, yeah. Yeah, and he turned out, he said, oh, yeah, he said, he said I was in charge of that project. So he's used to doing all kinds of bizarre things, but he didn't, you know, I don't think he ever thought that a few people would get sick. I don't know if somebody died from it or not. I don't yeah, remember some, now. Yeah, some people did. It was supposedly an inactive virus. They were testing it as a, a vector, I believe. You know, to uh, see that if the if that disease could be used or whatever it was, the virus could be used to 
uh, carry a more um, harmful virus along with it or bacteria or whatever they were. Yes. And, and they wanted to see how they they set it up so that the weather would carry or the wind or whatever yeah. would carry it to a certain area. But, you know, I don't he, he certainly didn't apologize for it. He said, you know, I, I, I don't think he was, was guilty of thinking anybody's going to get hurt. But so but these guys are involved in all, you know, I guess they're all kind of involved in these these things of spreading things and maybe even psychological games that they play. I, I I was very surprised when he mentioned that maybe Bentwater could have been an experiment. But I can't believe that. Halt? Halt has met him? The, the, yeah, Charles the, Halt. Just, I, I can't imagine he would know better and say, well, that that didn't happen. I really think a, a thing landed. But it's no different than the one in, done in, that happened a few years earlier with... Um, down in, oh, crime! Why am I? I don't want to forget what it is. Well, if you if there you, was a, if you say what it is, maybe we can figure out where it happened. Well, it was in New Mexico. It was. Uh, well, all of a sudden, I've drawn a blank, and I know the guy who Corso, not Corso, shit. <laughs> I knew I'd, I'd I'd forget somebody I knew very well. He was a sheriff down there chasing a car and went up oh, around uh, the bend. Oh, Lon- Lonnie Zamora. Yes, Lonnie Zamora. Yeah. Well, I know that Lonnie, because we went and, and talked to him, and he really, I don't think it was a psychological thing. I think a craft not dissimilar to the one at Bentwater landed. It sounded very much about the same size. And, and Lonnie pulls up and thinks he's chasing a car and looks down in the little valley there and sees a couple legs coming out from under the the craft. Yeah. And they see him, and all of a sudden they clamor in. The thing blasts off for 20, 30 feet and then becomes silent. Well, I mean, that I don't think that was a psychological thing. Oh, I don't, I think, think, it, I, I don't think it was either. I mean, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's from another planet or whatever, but that, that case has intrigued me since I've been a kid. I actually went out and visited there, Bob, this year. Tried to find Did the exact. Really? I tried to find the exact spot, but it's not really marked really well. Well, I left a couple of rocks there. You could find it by now, unless somebody really messed it up. Oh, I'm sure it's Did still you... there. I, I drove up on that in that rocky area, like up above those houses, and looked around, but I couldn't really find anything. Well, I didn't, I didn't, from where he was, you couldn't see any houses, so I don't know unless they've been built since. That's oh no, possible. I went past. It looks like they're building some stuff there. And somebody said there was a memorial or something like that. All it was was a painting on a drainage ditch. Did you see that? A painting on a drainage ditch? No. Yeah, I somebody recently that. they have somebody had painted this mural of Lonnie Zamora on oh, kind of a wow. storm drain thing that's at the edge of this area. They're just about to put some houses in, which are is just adjacent. I mean, if it, if they build it any further, they'll build over the site. Well, you know, uh, apparently the army was the first on the scene before the Air Force. Everybody, I mean, both Army and Air Force were very much involved in that. I think that the Army is probably more involved in some of this business than than we knew. They just don't talk about it. Yeah, well, I I, I have the same opinion of the Navy. I think the Navy knows a lot about these things. Oh, the Navy may know more. Yeah. Um, And they just, nobody thinks about that. And the Navy is perfect, and the Army and all the other forces... 
uh, armed forces that are involved with it. I think that's perfect. They think that's perfectly fine. They'd rather have the Air Force have the headache. Yes, because they were the front men for it anyway. Yeah. But I, I began to think that the Navy maybe knew more than any other branch. I just it just occurred to me. Remember, I, I told you about one of the most interesting of all things, and Bob Friend was involved in it, was that uh, where Helen Cotter, I think he was a Navy commander. Yeah, Roscoe Helen Cotter, yeah. And, and where they... He sent two of his Navy guys up to Maine to meet with a woman who was communicating with theoretically aliens or whoever they were. <laughs> I didn't know that had happened. This I do not know about. Oh, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm sure I would have told you about it. But uh, it was Helen Cotter. I guess Helen Cotter had heard about a woman in Maine who was having communications with aliens. So it was. So he sent this Larson, Commander Larson, and another one up to inter- in, interview her and talk to her. And they said that she, with seeming help from them, whoever they are out there, she was able to answer technical kinds of questions. Now, then a turn happens, a turn where the woman says, Mrs. Swan was her name, not the same Swan as, you know, there's another Swan, Swan. Yeah. Yeah but it's another swan, uh, said they are willing to speak through you, Larson. And he kind of got, well, what, what, what am I supposed to do? What do I do? And apparently I was not present, so I don't know. Somehow she told him to relax, put, herself, put himself in a, some sort of state. And then once he was in that state, the other uh, commander was to ask, him questions of which he is supposed to get answers from supposedly, um, you know, aliens or something or whatever they are. So that information went back to Helen Cotter and they had a, they decided to have a a meeting in Washington, D.C. And that's where we shot one of those things. There was a building. It's a naval intelligence building that all I can tell you, it's really a parking lot parking lots below and then on the upper floors is where naval intelligence operated and that they had a a wonderful story i'm sure i must have told you or wrote about it about there was a navy two navy guys it was a guy named lundahl who was a cia guy arthur lundahl i think yeah yeah well that's right well you know the story then he sat there and communicated or went into a trance to communicate with these beings out there. And they asked him dumb questions, you know, like find out if, uh, you know, we're going to have a third world war. Find out if, uh, you know, which religion do you you prefer? (laughs) I mean, there were three questions that like, my God, what dumb questions. But I guess they were so caught off guard they didn't know what to ask. Then the last question was, can we see one of your crafts? The word came back. They said, when would you like to see it? And they all sort of said, now. And through that Larson, he said, they must, they spoke to him, I suppose, telepathically. And they said, go to the window and you'll have your proof. They all get up and go to what I would call, I don't know, all I can tell is where the building was and you could see the Capitol Dome 
off in the distance out of this window. Mm-hmm. So they so they all got up and looked out this window. They supposedly observed a craft call for radar confirmation, and it came back that that quadrant of the sky was blanked out on radar. So then friend got involved, and they said, I would like to really pursue this more. And his commanding general said, no, don't bother it. It's going to be in, it'll be handled in a different way. And he said he was really wanted to, because he was, you know, at that time head of Project Blue Book. And he said he felt very disappointed that, they, that he was sort of left out of whatever happened after that. But it was a remarkable and impression and left him with a very interesting impression. Because Bob Friend is not a, a guy that believes, you know, on crazy stuff. Yeah, he's a pretty practical. Was guy. he there when that happened? What's that? Was he there when that happened? He was not there at the, the time. Oh, he was okay. called in when this incident happened. They brought him in. That's what I understand. Lundhall was there and had all the notes, and I got my notes from Bob Friend, who described the incident. And Lar- we talked to Larson, we talked to the, the, those Navy guys, and I don't know, and, and I, I, it had to have happened, otherwise it seems so well documented, although I don't know if the public knew that much about it. Yeah, about the only place you can see this written up, I think, is on Grant Cameron's site, maybe a couple others, but yeah, they, they described this incident and that it happened in, when was it, I guess the late 1950s or... 19, I think it was 59. Oh, okay, late 1960s, I'm sorry. No, no, well, I'm guessing it was 1959 that it happened, but I'm not sure I could, you know, I had all the papers on it, and I even talked to Hatch, Uh, not Hatch, uh, Lundahl. Oh, okay. And I said, would you, I said, would you mind being in the program and talking about it? He said, I'm still on duty. I cannot do that. And he even later said, I deny that that really happened. You know, it's like trying to wheedle out of it. But Bob Friend was in the midst of it all and was quite aware of what the, what the truth of it was. And yet he had he was uh, he was uh, involved or running Blue Book at the time, you said? Yeah, yes, he was. Which now, was basically tasked to, to um, care. Uh, Get reports and um, sh- tell people to shut up when they wanted to ask anything deeper than, you know. Uh, although, although I never got that impression. I mean, personally, I didn't think that he. Uh, now, Quintanilla was happy to just you know say anything he thought should be said. Yeah, Hector but Quintanilla. Bob Friend yeah. took it. Bob Friend took it very seriously. He's he's kind of a believer, but doesn't talk about it. I mean, he was. I mean, that wouldn't be the only time. I mean, you think about Lani Zamora way back when. For God's sakes, he's not making up a story. Yeah. Nor were the guys at Bentwater making up stories. I just think we've had a few contacts, and I don't, I don't know what to think when people say they, you know, they've met with aliens and they have conversations and have a hot dog with them. And you know, I mean, the silly <laughs> stuff they talk about. You know, that's true. Then on the other side, I. I don't know how long we're. Am I talking too long? Uh, you know, Bob, no, you can talk for right. as long as you want about whatever you want. 
And if I think it's okay. boring, I will cut in. That's how this show goes. As long as <laughs> as long as the person's interesting, I let them go because I want to yeah, hear it. Yeah, I understand it. that. <laughs> well, you know, you're about you. I have not really talked to anybody about these things for a long time, so. I get a little bit rusty on some of this thing. No, well, it's, it's that, highly fascinating because I and the people listening have heard bits and pieces of this for a long time, and um, little bits more come out as you talk, and maybe it can be used to, you know, other people can use it, have, can make the, draw the, you know, uh, parallels. Yeah, or look into it themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, let me think of what else. You know that, there's a, a couple things I may have mentioned to you in the fact. Just I just wrote it down so I'd remember that Major Kehoe's called called us at our studio, yeah, and told and contacted the Secretary of the Air Force, and he was very mad. He just could not believe that two people who were not in the military and were on the outside were given all of this contact and being involved. Yeah. <laughs> And he complained to, uh, I guess, the Secretary of the Air Force. Well, doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I remember. He was like, you know, he was such a major player in that whole thing. Major Kehoe is supposed to have all the answers. And here are two guys from I don't know where, from L.A., being briefed on a lot of things that apparently he never knew about. But I what? guess that's the way it works. Well, it's what it sounds like, uh, you know, uh, after des- describing what you've described today and what we've talked about in the past and talked about on the phone between each other, is that there are certain factions that want certain information to be um, dealt with, revealed, um, processed by people rather than the military, and other factions that, are, that don't want it to be. Is, is yeah, that your I, impression? I agree. I totally agree. As a matter of fact, jumping forward... <laughs> You know that I, we made a presentation to Department of Defense about a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you sort of went over this with me when we talked, but I didn't hear very much about it. Also, you said at the well, time you didn't want to talk about it on the show, but you brought it up. So, Yeah, well, it was that uh, we the, the, the guys on the West Coast are the first line of you have to go through. In the past, we, we were... A, approach directly and uh, there's there's two guys out in southern california who are represent the department of defense and review a lot of these things so alan contacted them and we uh we made a good impression he said we remember the program we respect it now something happened in which um let me try and think of what happened we were going to work with uh, the guy who did uh, had, had done a couple of things. Oh, Kremen here. His name is. Uh, what did he done? Me. Well, he did a couple of things. I know what I saw, and uh, a couple of programs like that on UFO. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I know who you're talking yeah. about. And I know the program, but I can't think of the guy's name. A couple of the listeners are probably yelling right now, or yelling it out in their living rooms, but. And we got him involved, but somebody who was going to fund it jumped the gun and contacted the Department of Defense guys, and they were kind of upset. We did not ask. Oh, I'll remember his name in a, in a minute or so here. Cause we, have a, we had a contract with him, as a matter of fact. James Fox? Yeah, James Fox. Okay. I, I, he's a wonderful guy. I really, 
we went as far as we could, and then something. Alan's impression was that somebody who was a who has maybe one of these radio, who's a big timer in the you know UFO radio stuff, had made a contact with the Department of Defense, and they were not very happy about someone sticking their nose in it. That's what Alan felt anyway. Uh-huh. I could give you all their names, but what difference does it make? Yes, <laughs> I, I thought Fox was a, he, I see. <laughs> Fox was a good man, though. I, he, he was ready to go. We had contracts with him. And then uh, something just sort of, then he went off and he needed work. And so he did that thing with the National Geographic which apparently yeah. didn't turn out very well. No, I, some, I, I heard about it. I, actually, I still some, have a copy of it. I haven't watched it yet. I think uh, it, well, I think his one was very good, where, where it's interviewing a lot of the old Army guys and Navy guys and people and foreign, you know, other pilots from other countries. Seemed like a good program. And then there was a woman who got key... There's a woman who wrote a book about it. I don't know how in the heck she, I don't know what, what information she really got out of. You know, I'm talking about somebody. I don't remember her name now. Uh, Leslie Keen. Keen. Keen yeah, Leslie hmm? Keen. Leslie Keen. Yeah, Leslie Keen. Yes. I don't know where she is and the whole picture of all of this, but they are really sort of dredging up stories that were not were interesting, but. They're not taking us any closer to an answer. It's just more people have said, yeah, I believe in it. Well, uh, you know, Bob, what do you think would take us closer to an answer? Maybe maybe my question is, what, what do you think's wrong with people that are looking at UFO stuff now? And what, what do you think could change so that uh, more important people could take it more seriously, I guess, or thoughtful people could take it more seriously? I don't know, but during this time that I, I'm about to tell you the scenario that we asked them about, I call SETI, and that was really a dumb thing to do. The SETI <laughs> people are not interested in uh, about the contact. No, they're they interested in money. Huh? They're interested in money. Yeah, and I, I said, look, I, I'd like to work with you. Here's what we're after, and we're talking about a scenario about the first contact. And it was, you know, I was telling the neighbor next door about how he mows his lawn or something. It was like, we just didn't connect. Then they didn't want to talk. I, where they didn't know what, I don't know what it was, just sort of ended in a very unsatisfactory way. And I went to the trouble of talking to some of their head people. So I realized that I don't know what they're into. Maybe money is right. No, they're interested in raising money so they can have their program and live off that program. That's the impression I get. They don't really care if they 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 don't they know it's virtually impossible to contact any extraterrestrial civilization by radio. I think they know that, <laughs> and I think that that they don't really care. What they care about is um, basically getting getting the funding to do something that sounds exciting on the on the face of it, and then they can do their other research and all that and do what they want to do. And so, a friend of mine went and talked to Seth, Seth Shostak, who was the head of SETI for a while, I think. Yeah. And uh, she, he said that, one, he was rude, and two, he was driving a very nice car. So I don't, well, know, what the, I don't know what that means, because the only thing we know about him doing was being the head of SETI for a while. And I think I that... Just, I, w- I, was, I was very foolish to not 
dig into what SETI really want to do because I thought they would be a very good contact and they wanted to share what we uh, wanted to do. And it's like the, oh, yeah, oh, like I, we were talking about, you know, auto mechanics or something and not yeah. reaching out into space. It, it left me up in the air like they didn't question anything. They did not want to know what we had done or what contacts we had. They just, so that just ended unrewarding for me, certainly. Yeah. Like, like I said, I don't think they're interested in the uh, UFOs or extraterrestrials or anything like that, except possibly as an abstract concept and um, something interesting maybe, but no, with no real reality to it uh, at all. I mean, to the point where they... They don't really. They don't really think they're going to contact anyone ever. They just want to keep trying because it <laughs> it looks good. I I don't know. They they yeah. keep they keep. I think they keep getting almost not funded. And they, oh well, then um, who was it? The uh, Microsoft guy gave them a bunch of money. I think. Oh well, well that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. You know uh, what what I was saying, and maybe I've repeated this just a moment ago to you. I'm reading the the treatment that we gave to the Department of Defense. It was you know out in the in Nevada and uh, at NORAD and the men are all glued to these monitors and we watched, uh, you know, in unison these tracking devices following an incoming object Yeah. and we cut to the interior and then, unidentified, and then the unidentified object approaches and, they, and they're monitoring it and uh, we send up a squadron of jets to sort of prepare to scramble and I've just, and they've received an unprecedented alert, and they're about to witness a historic event that is that a craft, and it's not a, gr a drill, a craft is guided to a landing. And the questions are that I had for them, which they should be able to answer, is what is the protocol now? Uh, what, what activity, uh, which, who's going to be informed of it? And, and is DARPA ready, already ready to explore methods of communication with the, with them? And I talked about the, when I talked to Coleman, he said they've experimented and they've done research on how to communicate. And he said it just did not prove to be sort of like remote viewing. It's it does work, but it's not reliable. Reliable. Yeah. And that's the problem with it. So I was very disappointed that he didn't want to proceed with at least exploring some of this. So we sort of left it uh, that one what? guy, DOD, was loved the idea, and his the guy he worked with said, "Ah, we don't, we don't want to get into the UFO stuff again." Not that <laughs> they had to even in, involved. It's just that it would be easier with their blessing. It's much easier to yeah to, to work your way through the problem. Right, right. You can use somebody's name, or you know that that you have the you have that ticket when you go in so that they don't say who the hell are you or what are you doing here and yeah. you can proceed what was your point of uh, approaching all these people at this time just to see since your well, last no, film actually if I wanted to say changed? I think we've already discussed there's nothing more really to talk about UFOs you know we've been at least we've been down that track and then the next step is contact disclosure and I wanted to know how we would approach that, even from a, just a educational point of yeah, view. Theoretical, what, what even, is, yeah. Yeah, theoretical. And, you know, maybe this still can be done. But I sort of felt 
like, well, there wasn't enough spark to take us to the next level to meet with anybody in, in, in Washington or in Pentagon. So we just sort of, you know, abandoned it. And uh, as I said, uh, we took it pretty far, but it just didn't materialize. And it's too much work. It's a lot of work to push those things through, too, if you don't have, as we did the first time, you know, an invitation to do it. Yeah. Because they, they originally they wanted this to be done. And uh, this time it's something... I would like to do and think would be interesting, but it wouldn't well, be done with their cooperation. They yeah. wouldn't stop it. Well, they wanted it to be done the first time, but then they offered, didn't, wasn't, isn't the story you were offered the use of the Holloman film for the documentary and then suddenly they said, oh, no, well, you can't use it. Yes, absolutely. And now everybody's played games toward the last to ease this off of that by saying, like, uh, John Alexander thinks that you know, it was a an A. It's not the SR seventy one. It was the A three something. One of those crafts had landed there at Holloman. But I, I said, look, if it was a seventy one that landed there, that's not a big secret. We've been using that thing for some time. Why would that be? You know, who are we trying to hide, or what are we trying to hide? And the thing is that I had all the names of who was at the base and went down there, asked questions. As you know, I, <clears throat> I'm i repeating myself probably, but the time that we decided, well, let's get down to Holloman and I'll go down there. I don't remember if Alan went with me, but I went down. First of all, we called. Alan called the com- base commander at Holloman yeah. without, without a preparation. And the guy said, you want to do what? get out of here. So we called our contact at the Pentagon. He said, oh, give me five minutes and call him back. And then we did. And he said, well, come on down. <laughs> and everything, everybody was very cooperative. I wandered around. I'm repeating myself as you know this, but I wandered I, I want by you myself. To. Pardon? I want you to repeat it because I don't remember all of this. Well, I arrived we looked in the book for um, for a name that we knew who was supposed to be at the base at the time. And I'll tell you his name in a minute. He sort of disappeared. Well, I'll get back to it. Lorenzo, Alfonso Lorenzo. He's the first one who apprised Norton Air Force Base that this film had been taken because he was... He was on duty down there at the time and knew uh, the people that at Norton. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm rambling around about this. So I arrived and uh, asked. I had a young junior officer with me, and I sort of lost him. He said, "I'm going to the bathroom." He said, "Okay." <laughs> so then I went into went into the uh, to the the main office where the contact is made where the contact would have been made, the radio or what is it called? I forgot to say it's, it's where the, they observe anything that's coming in, the control or a, not a control tower, control room and I went up to one of the radar guys and said, uh, God I'll bet you that time that that thing came in, you were really surprised, weren't you? And he said, yeah we were. 
He said, we don't, we don't, I said, well, he said, you mean the flying bathtub? And I said, yes. I said, well, what do you know about it? He said, well, I can't tell you very much about it. We're not really supposed to talk about it, but you might talk to the team, the photographic team. So I just put that in the back of my head and thought, well, then I said, can I see the building at the end of Mars Avenue? There's a little place that, a, a hangar that I would like to see. Okay, fine. We hopped in one of those blue sedans, you know, typical Air Force things. And a young officer drove me all the way out to the ends of Mars Avenue because I was told that the craft was housed in this uh, little hangar until they were through and went and left. So the building or the hangar was pretty well closed down. And he even helped me. This I think it was a young lieutenant. We got a crowbar and sort of crowbarred <laughs> the, the door open so we could go in. What? <laughs> Nobody's yeah. saying anything to you about this. Oh, I didn't. I never mentioned it. No. Well, no, but nobody's so we, bothering you, huh? You just went ahead and go ahead. I went out. And anyway, we pried it open, and I was told that this is where their craft was put for a short period of time. Well, inside there wasn't anything but an old. There was a jet engine, and a looked like it had been abandoned. Well. And so, I mean, he was very helpful. <laughs> so I said, hey, thanks a lot. He said, oh, it's kind of fun to do this anyway, and drove back to the m main part of the, the base. And then I went over to the radar or to the photographic department, and they were didn't quite want to talk about it, but I was told that that craft had been photographed from a helicopter and one of the guys who photographed it was in the photographic department. It's like a, it's like chasing a ghost or something. I knew all the facts. Nobody denied anything, but I never got very far for myself. Yeah. Except for people saying, "Oh yeah, I remember the day that that uh, flying bathtub came in and the base was closed down." Well, Coleman played a a game of. 20 questions about it and he said no it wasn't this wasn't that wasn't that. and i'm not sure if coleman really knew that was i began to think that by the way he was playing this game i'm not sure if he even knew he said oh it was an sr-71 that was in trouble and needed to land at holloman well well that's not a flying bathtub or or uh, weird to anybody really if they lurked at the base yeah so whatever a flying bathtub was or it, it probably looked like one. In other words, maybe it had these four legs and it looked yeah. like... I've never seen a flying bathtub, though. But the point is that everybody seemed to know that something had happened. In fact, I told you I once talked out in Southern California at one of those sort of oh, special places where I knew the people and they said, would I come and show the film and talk about it? And I took Coleman with me. Yeah. And when I was showing the film, uh, some they, the civilians were in the audience, women, men, everything, and one woman stood up and said, oh, my son was there at Holloman when that thing came in. And she said, they closed up the base pretty well. And now Coleman must heard that and didn't comment one way or another. So it's like a strange Kafka play that you're in the middle of, and you know a few things, and nobody's able to put it all together. 
didn't somebody in your like uh maybe not sandler but somebody you knew actually saw the film and described it to you well Charlotte yeah described it to me and he described it on the air for god's sakes you mean while you, you were know, while your I cameras dragged him were rolling. on that, that that ufo cover up live from washington dc yeah i brought him on and said okay you know i don't want to be the only one talking about it so he described it and nobody he said oh he was told it was a, a just an exercise but that isn't what he told me they told us pretty good detail. So, what did he say? Well, I'd have to get the thing out. He said, "Well, he saw there was three plane, three crafts. One seemed to be in trouble in the film. It 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 landed, and uh, beings got out of it. And." Uh, now he now he he's put on the spot to say that because that's what I was told. All he did is confirm it. But then he said, "Oh, it was just a an exercise." And he said, "I but I don't believe it was an exercise." He said, it, "I would have had records if there had been, uh, you know, a something a drama had this thing had been done as a project." He said there was no no records of that at all. So he had to. What he ended up saying was, "I don't, I don't believe it was made up. I, I saw what I saw." So it looked it like leaves, it, what, it, what it looked like to him was a, not fake or anything like that. It looked like something that wasn't military hardware known landed and some yes, yes, things exactly. got out that didn't look like people in military uniforms with uh, with hu- yes. with completely human features. Do you remember up at Edwards, one of the astronauts? Some one of these crafts looked very similar, landed, and the crew who was filming some exercise that the astronaut was involved with saw the thing land and stay for a while and then take off, and there was even some sort of film of it. And then when, I don't remember which astronaut it was. Does this ring a bell with you that he was up doing an exercise? And It kind Edward, of does. It. At Edwards, you say? Yeah, I think it was Edwards. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I remember something about this, and I don't know if it was... Uh, uh, who's the guy that started the... Aldrich? No- Who? I, I'm trying to remember which one he was. So he demanded, he said, well, I want to see that film, because I, I know the guys filmed it. Yeah. The film was sent back to the Pentagon, and he may have looked at the film holding it up. It was 16 millimeter, I think. Hmm. And uh, he was wanting to know whatever happened to the film, and no one would tell him. Uh-huh. So I guess it's not unusual that Mitchell things do it was, land. Was, it wasn't Edgar Mitchell, was it? No, Edgar okay. Mitchell really makes up good stories, and he's a nice man. But <laughs> but I know that he talked about Roswell as if you know it really happened, and and that's why I got into trouble with Stanton Freeman recently. I was asked by this French magazine uh, who sends out, I don't even know the name of it, a little, I put a paragraph of my own experience, not very depthy, but I just wanted it, ended it by saying, I, I don't think that uh, at Roswell, any, cra- any foreign craft or bodies were ever found, or nor was there a crash. 
and that also that MJ12 was a, you know, kind of a made up, was a made up story, mm-hmm. even, and the, and then when that was printed, Stanton Freeman had a fit. He was so angry at me, and I, you know, it's like why? That was the truth. No alien craft landed in Roswell. In fact, I talked about with Bob Friend again about that in Coleman. He said, you know, it would have been handled much differently if it was really, if there were bodies, they would have been sent to the burn facility, which is somewhere down there, and and the parts would not be sent to Wright-Patterson because there's no reason for that. And the only things that I, the people that I talked to, they said that they found you know, like balsa wood strips with strange writing on them and, and that that material that had a memory. That I know people had that, you know. On, they put it out on somebody's uh, dining room table and then they crunched it up and it returned to it, you know, with a memory. He said that yeah. was just all part of our, our stuff that came from Wright Patterson. Now, I don't know. I imagine Stanton Freeman has a fit when I say that, but... Well, what do you, what do you what do you think it was then? You thought you told I'm, me you I'm said a, you thought I it was, was mogul. I was told seven or eight years ago that it was mogul, and then I the more I understood what mogul was, the more it, sense it made. Uh-huh. It was they had a they had a very large high flying balloon with six sensors, little triangular sensors under them. It was very top secret, and they drifted it over the Soviet Union to see if they are testing atomic uh, weapons. And that was the whole purpose of Mogul. And it came back to, almost made it back, but it ended up in New Mexico and splattered around. And there really was no bodies, no crafts. And then, uh, stupidly, the Air Force later put out a thing about, you know, dumping bodies out of the planes and all, which it was really, why did they even say that? He was a one of our very, very high-secret projects well where did all these stories of bodies and and uh... i don't know where they came from there were no bodies i mean i i talked to people at wright patterson including you know weinbrenner we talked briefly about that yeah and i, I suppose i've talked to you since the time that brian george weinbrenner yes george weinbrenner yeah passed away and told his secretary, his nurse, I told you this, I'm sure, his nurse said, he said to his nurse, I want you to get hold of Bob Emenegger and tell him that there are five bodies that we had in Utah. I got a phone call from the nurse's husband. Did I ever tell you this? No, I don't think so. You might have told me privately, I think, but not on my show. Oh, well, anyway, and then, so I I thought that's very unusual, so I turned it over to uh, Cameron, Grant Cameron, and yeah. uh, and I said, why don't you go down and investigate it, because, and they did, they went down to, and talked to the nurse, and and I just left it up to them to do the investigation, I have a picture of both of them standing in the cemetery in front of Weinbrenner's uh, tombstone, you know, looking very somber. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he's deceased now. But but I, I didn't know what to think about that. I was flattered that he would 
tell his secretary or his nurse and the nurse would tell his the husband and the husband would phone me out of the blue I still have the uh, email that he sent me I thought that was remarkable the only reason I can think of that Weinbrenner would mention me was the only time he appeared uh, in anything is where I was talking to him you know in a, one of those interviews that's the only thing I can think of because he's never but he what he said was that there were there was some sort of non-human bodies in possession of the US government but but he didn't say it was from Roswell though oh no nothing to do with Roswell it said it had to do with I don't know who they would have been and where they were, but they were in some base in Utah, and that there was some underground facility. But then, but then when I told Coleman and those guys, they said, "Oh, he's kind of a joker, and he probably made it up." But why would he do that? He was very straightforward with with everything that we talked about. We uh-huh. visited him down in when he was in the retirement home down in Texas. Yeah. Got along with him great. Not, Wendover was, you, was that the place in Utah or Wendover? I think so. Yeah. I was. I didn't quite get. You know, the best they could tell me was it is in Utah. I mean, you know, the nurse and the right. The nurse didn't tell me, but the, the husband of the nurse. And it's like, why would he even mention that? I thought it was interesting. It seemed to him be that it was important for him to let me know why me i'm not anybody except that we you know we'd had conversations before yeah well either he really thought that was going on um or and he and on you know by extension he was either knew that's what was going on or he was made to believe it and um, well yeah it could be yeah and, but you know he knew the guy was so he would have known a lot of things i mean here he is He's re- he is really in the security, high-profile spot, heading up the spying on the, you know, the all foreign countries, including UFOs, were under his jurisdiction. Huh. And he, he never. Anyway, I, I I enjoyed him. He was very helpful. He's the one who. Kiddingly brought in the, something that he had a Mexican officer that used to work with him and said, crazy guy. He used to make up stories about aliens. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Remember, I, maybe I mentioned that to you. Mm, not he, about Weinberg, no. For, well, then one day, and then the following day, I get a phone call. I'm sorry. Are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay, it was yeah. kind of like you were breaking up, or maybe I was talking over you. No, where where he told about this Mexican officer he had who was making up stories, I thought, oh, that's interesting. The following morning, Hector Quintanella calls and said, by the way, George asked if I would work with you guys. So what he was really saying, that was the Mexican officer that was making up stories, was Quintanella. Yeah, but he, it's, from what you said, that Quintanilla was probably making up s- stories t- to drive people away from the seriousness of the subject, not towards it. Oh, I guess, yeah, may, I don't know what. But anyway, I did like him. We got along. We talked down in uh, Texas. And uh, he, he's a very smart man. But anyway, 
so that was my experience with Quintanella and uh, Weinbrenner. There are other things. I don't know. You We've know, already talked about. Yeah. You know, if um, Grant Cameron was on this show, he'd probably grill you far better than I can. <laughs> he said what? If Grant Cameron was on this show with us, he'd probably grill you a lot better than I can because he's got the steel trap mind about all these, all the uh, government UFO history. Um, when well, you I, know, he's a pretty, I really like him. He's a good man. He's the one who got me involved in that X conference in yeah. 2006, I think it was. Uh-huh. And I'm, you know, I felt he was like my buddy, my roommate, and uh, I, I always told him as much as I knew about what, what we were we were into. Uh-huh. And he seemed to he seemed to confirm it. In fact, he was the one who, on the History Channel, brought me in to talk about working with Nixon and Haldeman and and you know the UFO stuff. And how much did Nixon know? What did you tell? What did you say for that show about that question? Well, I could send you a little clip of it. It's really, you know, I, I what can I say? I, um, I just know that I, I knew that he knew what I was talking about, and it started with Coleman when we were in his office, who said, "I think I know somebody that can help you." And he called, called Weinbrenner. So we end up with Weinbrenner, and I went over and talked about UFOs and all. And he was very cagey and great, and sort of, <laughs> sort of avoided. But finally said, uh, "Oh, yes, I, I remember this part." He said, "Well, what we're concerned about now is." weather alteration and the soviets are seem to be very advanced but i have the best scientists working counter strategies uh about weather alteration and he this is i'm not this is what i already have told you but he took a book off the shelf behind me put it in my lap and he said scientists like this and the book was to my good friend colonel weinbrenner and it was alan Hynek's book on ufos so he was really indirectly saying, I know what you're talking about. Well, I don't know if I've expressed that clearly enough, but whatever no, he, what, was saying, he, what was he was saying. What he was saying when you were in the office was that you're onto something. I know that you're onto something, and I can't really speak about it directly. So what he did That's was what he it said, sounded like. Yeah, he put that. Um, uh, book in your lap, the uh, the Alan Hynek book. I can't. Really, it's, I think it's the one he co-authored with uh, Valet, actually. And he started yes, talking probably. about the the uh, something about ranting about the MiG twenty five because he thought maybe there was a. Oh well, that's where it started. That was the first thing he said. Oh, the goddamn MiG twenty five, you know, and drew a picture of it on his blackboard, and said, you know, this is what we're interested in. And thanks to the Israelis, they captured one of them for us. And we've back-engineered it and so forth, and that was number one. He says, but that's not the problem. The latest problem, and I'm jumping forward of all the problems, was <laughs> the weather alteration that the Soviets are up to. And that ends up with him reaching up, and I've got good scientists working on counter-strategies. Pulls a book down, which is puts in my lap, and it's all about UFOs. Yeah. So it's like indirectly telling me, 
I know what you're talking about. <laughs> what year was this? Oh, it must have been 73, something like that. Uh-huh. God, it seems like, doesn't seem like a long time ago, but it was. Now, how's your how's your buddy? Is, there, is your buddy still there in the room with you? Yes, Walter's here, and he's, he 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 looked like he was going he he was going to sleep for a second. No, no, I've been listening. <laughs> Walter, <laughs> when I when I listen to any uh, radio show, uh, Bob, I uh, I lay there with my eyes closed. Anyway, no, I've been listening to all this. This is good stuff. Okay, well, I, I the last few moments, I think I've gotten kind of ragged on the story, but but I think you can sort of figure out what it was. I don't know if you knew also, I was thinking back, I'm looking at some names, that we had a CIA guy with us named Dick Besky all the time when, when we were in Southern California. You mean most and recently? Came, no, way back when. Oh, okay. What was his he, name? And he would, Huh? What was his name? Dick Besky. I, I still have his card. Oh, wow. You know, okay. One of those cards. I don't know if he's still with the agency or not, but... Mm. They they were helpful behind the scenes. They even went down to look for the uh, the personnel book in Holloman to find out about where they went to Wright Patterson and were looking up a name for us or no no the list of personnel that was at Holloman during the seventies. And the, they said, well, we can't get that file out to you right now. And he was doing this on his own, out of curiosity. And he said, why don't you come back tomorrow? And when he went back, he was saying, what do you mean? What happened to the, the, those files? They said, oh, God, well, they were old and uh, they'd been destroyed. And he was also, he was not there on official business, but he was going, hey, what's going on, you know? So you don't think he was there watching you. You think he was there just because he was interested in the subject and trying to see what you could find out. Uh, yeah. Are we talking about the same thing? There was a guy that went back for that was interested and wanted to know about, for instance, there was a name, Alfonso Lorenzo, who yeah. called and and he was in the we were looking for his name in the, uh, the personnel book, which, you know, it was earlier. And that's when they told him, come back. And then they said, oh, I'm sorry. No, that was outdated and destroyed. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I know, you know, people like it, it doesn't matter if they're CIA or what they are. Once they're hooked on a story like that, they kind of begin to get fascinated and want to find out for themselves. You know, it's not we're not trying to uncover any great mystery or secret. But there seemed to be help along those lines. And Alan seem to have connections like that like his secretary she was married to a fbi agent so they were kind of around well it sounded like there was some some around your project was an informal uh group of people with some connections trying to find out you know, if they could find out some reality behind the UFO subject through an official yeah. channel. John John Alexander's been doing that for years. Um, yeah, Hal John Putoff's Alexander. been doing he, that for he's years. He's a disbeliever, too. Yeah, I don't know what... I, it's funny, because I think he used to be interested in the reality of the subject or some kind of reality behind it, and now it seems most of his public pronouncements are it's there's there's nothing to it so far. And the government's never been interested in it, which is I I that's I know that's untrue. Well, he also that's told very me very untrue. Yeah, 
I uh, one time I asked him. I said, um, when you were in the in the in the '80s, were you not involved with with Bill Moore, Jamie Chandray, Rick Doty, all those people in the in that quote unquote aviary group, which was just an informal group of people that with that name that was given to them by by Moore and Chandray? And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was never involved in that. And I said, Well, well I don't. I don't. Bl- I, I would agree that he probably didn't know what you're talking about. That was kind of like a little inside group that was making up all kinds of stories and and certainly they were you know certainly egged along by Doty and Collins in fact I told you that when I talked to a friend maybe I shouldn't have mentioned his name who was high up in OSI before he did his other work he said what they were doing was really against the principals and could be court-martialed for their going into to the home of a private person's home and disrupting things. Right. Well, well you, I don't you think you probably that, know that. Well, Walter does. He's nodding right now. He, he is he nodding off or not? No, no. He's he's nodding at that. He actually told me that uh, that uh, people knew about Doty when when he was in there, and that uh, is it okay for me to say this, Walter? Yeah, I mean, I've said it here before. Um, I, I can't go into too much detail, but when I was working something, um, the, you know, Doty was introduced to me as a cautionary tale when I was a new agent um, because of some of the ways the, the story we all know with Benowitz and stuff was handled. There's just certain things military agents, as you said, you know, you, you just can't do. You get in serious trouble. Yeah. I'm glad that to. you confirmed that. Yeah. Well, my impression of what was going on, and it's probably different than yours, and it's some, might be something we actually disagree upon, Bob, is that it was um, the group wasn't there to um, uh, what's the word? I said that my what I was told and what my impression was, and what I've not been able to disconfirm it yet, was that. Did you it, want to spell it instead of say it? What? What? No, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just no, I'm just kidding. My, Go ahead. My my impression of it, and until somebody finds me some kind of different evidence, and actually, when I announced who Falcon was, or I thought it was, Grant Cameron agreed, and he wrote a very good essay about it. But oh. what it was was a, a a basically informal group made up of people that are off the books, involved in some sort of counterintelligence thing. Against God, the, I can't believe it's counterintelligence. It's like. It, Playing games, I thought. Well, maybe from one point of view, it was playing games, but then on the, you know, that was just one corner of what was going on. That the rest of it was run from higher up, and that was just one little tentacle of that. The whole operation was this aviary thing. I think there was a huge operation going on off the books that reported up the chain of command to people that were in the CIA and in other intelligence agencies with people that were not officially in the agency anymore because they couldn't, you know, those people couldn't be traced or couldn't be, you know, uh, they would say, well, those people are retired or whatever. And so their, their, in, their networks could be informal. Um, and that's what I think all of this was based around. It was in some sort of informal counterintelligence operation of which the aviary and UFO thing was a tiny, tiny little bit. And that's the only part we know about. Well, I always thought that it was games that Chandray and Moore were playing personally for what you know, reason? I mean, games that were just for their own amusement. 
Oh, well, I, I, for some reason, I, I think that at least Moore had a, a genuine interest in it, and he's trying to find out for himself. And if he thought he could help, you could help him, he was serious with you. And if you thought he thought you couldn't help him, he either ignored you or played with you. Well, as I told you, you know, I, I think very kindly of Moore, uh, especially when he gave us two kittens for our daughter. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, he, he's a good boy. Yeah. He's very nice. And I fell for it, too. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't fall for it. <laughs> Whatever happened to that poor man who uh, tortured the dead? Who, Benowitz? He... You, you do know that I have these, these strange letters from Benowitz no, pleading I didn't me know. to do something to help him. No, I did In not fact, know this. Yes, as a matter of fact, you know, the, the Mirage Men guys that wrote the Mirage Men? Yeah, Pilkington and Lundberg. Yes. They were here, as you know, they were here, or yeah. did I? Did you know that? Yes. Well, anyway, I pulled out the letters for them. I think they photographed them, or they just wanted to see them. I, I have no use for them, but, I mean, he's pleading for some sort of help, Benowitz was. And I felt, I didn't know what, there's nothing I could do, but... When did he send you these letters? Oh, this was... Must have been. When did he die? It was certain just before that. He died in two thousand three, I believe, two or three. Okay, so it could have been in the nineties. Okay. And uh, I still have them, and they're interesting. He had fo- not photographs, but he had pictures he sent with an arrow pointing to like there's the craft, and what what he pointed to looked like a rock to me. So he was either seeing things or imagining things, but I felt very bad for him. He was really sort of desperate to get some sort of help, and there wasn't anything I could do because I, I, what can I do other than be aware that he's being tortured, which I thought they were torturing, and there's no reason to do what they did to him. And I think they should have been court-martialed for screwing with his head without any official, you know, orders or passes or whatever assignments. Yeah. I well I too people I do the lectures about it and they say, "Well, don't you have any moral, you know, judgment?" I said, "Well, yeah, I think it was wrong. I think that one thing I think people make the mistake and this is uh uh people forget is that he was he wasn't too stable to begin with. It's That's just what that, I understand. That, yeah, that, I do understand. That uh, um uh, Doty, and to a lesser extent, I guess more, since he was told just to leave him alone and let him believe what he wanted to believe and tell him certain things, that he was, he before he even got contacted by the Air Force, he was already kind of going over the edge, and the Air Force didn't really, and the AFOSI and a couple other agencies are interested in him, didn't really care about his state of mind, just that he stayed away from the projects they wanted him to stay away from. Oh. Yeah, no, that, that, that's probably true. That that, that true. might have been the handling agent, not the organization. Right. I think that's why the handling agent got in trouble because I guarantee you the organization gives a damn about that kind of thing, and that's probably part and parcel why Doty got in trouble. It's because when you do that kind of work, the first thing they teach you is is asset safety. And that includes mental safety and all that. And, and they preach that to you. So I think that's partly, if, if anyone neglected him, it was, it, was the, it was the man, the handler, not the agency. Oh, God, I don't know. Anyway, I just yeah. remember, 
I remember on that uh, UFO cover-up live from Washington, D.C., I knew those two clowns were going to be on the show behind a screen pretending like, you know, they had an insight into one, well, Doty or yeah. maybe it was Doty who talked about, you know, they like strawberry ice cream. I had called the only person I knew at the CIA to watch this program and because and, I knew there was going to be something funky about it and if they wanted to make a comment they were welcome to and i told seligman but it didn't work out as soon as they said something about the strawberry ice cream no one said yeah we're going to stand down that's ridiculous (laughs) yeah i i don't even i never could nobody could ever understand why he said that except for maybe just to make the whole thing look ridiculous i don't know i i don't know that was Bill Moore is the one who they went down to film him. I filmed them. I maybe down in at their base. I don't know. I knew they went off and were very secretive about what they were going to do. But you know, it doesn't take an intelligence officer to look at the at the desk of Seligman and see tickets for Alamogordo or not Alamogordo, wherever they were. Albuquerque. I knew that those what Albuquerque. Yeah, I knew that. They're obviously going down to Albuquerque, and that had to be to see, you know, those two guys, Collins and whatnot. Not that I care. It's just that it, you know, I was peaking, curious. Yeah. Yeah. And I have no ill feelings toward Moore. I don't really know Sean DeRay very well, but Moore is a very nice person. And I, I, you know, I remember way back when, oh, well, it doesn't matter about that. That's another story. But back to communicating with the aliens. <laughs> yeah. You know that we were doing a project in which I contacted John Lilly. Oh, really? Called, yeah, for a film that was called Laboratory. Uh-huh. And Annie, Annie Spielberg was our associate producer on it. And I, because we set up, I set up a screen. I said, how would you, what are the ways that maybe you could communicate? So in this film, we had a, like between two people, say it, whoever the alien was and, and one of us on the other side, they would put up, uh, put an object on this side and give it a name. And then the, on the other side, they would try and communicate back and forth with symbols. And of course, we didn't, we didn't carry that too far because that would have been a film unto itself. But but John Lilly was, you know, talk, working with high frequency to communicate with the dolphins. I don't know how, what success he really had. The guys, and we did a lot of things with the naval research guys down in San Diego, too. And when I mentioned John Lilly, they said, oh, well, I don't know. He's kind of, uh, he's way out there. They didn't think, they thought that a dolphin was about as smart as a German shepherd and not much smarter. But I didn't really, we didn't get much further with that. I know he was trying. And I know Coleman told me that for several years they were trying forms of communication. He didn't say what they were. I still have to ask him. I assume it was working with telepathy, but, and I don't know if, if, if they were working with universities or like remote viewers, but they said it just doesn't work 100%. That's all he said. But mm-hmm. they spent a lot of time. So how are we going to communicate with them? 
do you know anybody that can speak one of these languages? Like, <laughs> whatever they speak. I think it, I don't understand how people can, there are people who say that they communicate with aliens. Yeah. Like they sit down and have a conversation, and they, I, I just don't know what to think about people like that. Well, I, for a while I was, um, in con- until he died of pancreatic cancer, was a uh, friend of mine who was very interested in the, this uh, phenomenon of what he called alien writing. Where people say yeah, they re- yeah received some sort of writing from some sort of extra human source, be it paranormal or angelic or alien or whatever you want to call it, and what yeah. he said what he's you know the thing that kind of stuck with me was that you have to realize that any time anything comes through the human consciousness it is it is not the form that it came in it it gets yeah. it gets yeah. turned into what you think it is based on your prejudices, your background, there's a lot of you in there and it's not yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's not it's not the pure information because the pure information may not be understandable to your brain. Yeah. And you have By to put way, your you, metaphors around book, it. Oh, sorry. A, a book called Entangled Minds because Alan sent me that book to read and he wanted to pursue that subject of how we can communicate other than the language or, or written. And uh, I thought, boy, we, we haven't Dean got Radin? it nailed down yet. Is that Dean Radin? Maybe so. I've got the book upstairs. I almost finished it. Yeah, I, th- I think it is Dean Radin. I, I interviewed him once. He's another person I sat with for, I went there to interview him for a couple hours. I sat with him for yeah. six hours. He basically explained everything he wanted me to know over and over till he was sure I understood Oh, that's excellent. Would you mind starting with what he was telling you so I can just listen? <laughs> well, what <laughs> or I, that, or you can put it in a in an email. It's okay. However, you want to do it. Six well, hours. What, yeah. If you, you must have come away with what was the bottom line of what you felt, if I may ask you. The bottom line of all of you know everything he's talking to me. There were many many points made and many different subjects we went through and. What I put in sure. the what I put in. If you have a copy of Wake Up down there, the the excluded middle book, I know you have it. It's called Wake Up. Wake Up down there. It has that. It has that alien head on the front that looks like a Dallas symbol. Is this something you have it's associated a, with? It's my old magazine. That's where I interviewed Dean Radin. I think Mark oh Pilkington God, told you, me he saw it in your house. You maybe if if it is here, I sure would like to. At that time, it maybe was not interested. But now I'm very interested as I was trying to pursue this. It's it's got a purplish thing. cover and on the front and it's an eight and a half by eleven and the front of it has this alien head that that's divided in half like a Dow symbol with the with the S down the middle and the the light and the dark and the and the dark dot and the light dot. Well, listen, if I don't have it, I'll I send it to it's you. Still around somewhere. I'll send you a copy, but there's there's. Would a you th- mind? I'll. I'll pay you for it what the hell you got you need some royalties on it anyway <laughs> i'll just send I'd it buy, I, if i could buy it in a on a amazon I'm yeah you sure. can buy it on amazon it's it i've got the longest are you the author i'm the editor because i i edited the magazine for about 10 years and uh, okay there uh, but the thing is that the the longest interview in there is with the in the magazine it ran for about maybe eight pages in the book, it oh. runs for about 30 pages because I wanted to have everything we talked about in that interview, at least the essence well, you know, of it. 
I'm sorry to interrupt you. What I was saying was, you know, now I'm very interested in it. Maybe at the time, it seems like a very important thing to be reviewing and studying. That's all I can think. Yeah. Well, what I came away with, one of the main points is that, and it's hard to really get this into your gut, is is the idea that time is an illusion. And the only way you can, yeah, the only way you can really get that firmly entrenched in your mind is to either one experience it, or two Absolutely. have it explained to you in such a such an expert way that you finally realize that in many ways time is a construct, or the way we think of it is a con- is a human construct. Yes, it was very difficult for me to to, uh, to find, you know, you can say it and say, oh, well, time's an illusion. But until you either experience it <laughs> you or, know, it or have was, a good teacher, you don't realize it. It was probably through experiential, but conversationally, consciously, what got me there really quickly was actually a conversation we had with Bill Moore a few years ago. Yes. Well, this is why I like Bill, um, because the stuff outside of his involvement with the UFO world, which makes him a villain, um, the guy is into some pretty deep things, has some very interesting insights. And after a conversation with him, and I combine that with something my mentor told me years ago, I totally, in, in, totally got very quickly the whole concept of understanding time and the and the, the the artificial construct of it is our understanding and what its real nature most likely is and uh, to me it's fascinating and but it came really easy for me I don't know yeah uh, excellent I mean yeah and then there there's other things that come off of that where causality may not nor may not be what we think it is it may be work backwards as well at least from our point of view of it which has a lot of implications for all these paranormal things we talk about, about remote viewing or telling the future or something like that. It's Well, it, go ahead. I was thinking, you know, I remember playing games with Bruce Hershenson, who you may or may not know who he is, but Wasn't we were in a, the Air Force together yeah. years ago. And I remember we used to play games like before, sounds silly, but before we cleared the base, uh, you go in and you, everybody, all the people sign off and you you, you cleared the base. It usually takes about an hour. So Bruce and I shook hands way ahead of time, an hour ahead, and looked at each other and said, Hey, Bruce, well, we cleared the base. Isn't this great? Great. And then an hour later, we had done, gone through the whole routine and we shook hands again and repeated it. How oh, we've cleared the base. Hey, isn't it good to be out? And it's like... And we'd say, well, where did the time go between the first time we did it for fun and the time it actually happened? You know, you know, kind of mind-bending games to play. Yeah, well, that's a that sounds like an old idea of um, kind of uh, what's it? Not not really. I guess ritual magic or even mind over matter, where you basically envision the thing as already done, and it may, and it affects it affects yeah, the way you yeah. do it because. Your brain thinks it's already done, so it's just your job to kind of live through the, the uh, quote unquote time till you get there. It's just it's just well, a, you, it's, it's, you, you know, just assume a, that it's 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 a reality already. You know, uh, this brings up a whole subject which there's no time to get into. But you know, <laughs> I that's why you have to have you I, on I again. Really, I, I years ago I was very interested in yoga and the 
meditation. And I met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and got him on television uh-huh. before anybody had heard of him. And then when I went to and then met with Paramahansa Yogananda, no, I didn't meet with Paramahansa Yogananda, but, but another Indian teacher that my wife was interested in and met him in India, put him in a film, and I was very interested in yoga. I just thought they're, they're getting close to understanding or a, a way of understanding, you know, who we are and what we are. Well, I know that's not saying very much, but I've always thought about it and I've always thought about the limitation of me when I was young where the time the clock is going to run out and you know I'll just evaporate as an individual at least my body will and I was always always aware of that one one thing I think I told you that was amazing to me that gave me an insight into precognition is where I was sitting with Alan Sandler and the guy from Norton Air Force Base, and ask, asking where the uh, this UFO had been stored or taken to. Now, I think I told you this, so maybe it's silly to repeat it. But anyway, so Alan said, because I, I do like to play games of, you know, holding an object and saying where it was from, uh, just sort of it's entertaining. Psychometry. Two people do it. Yes, and I remember, so Sandler was, had, knew that I had sort of fooled around with that. And he said, where is this UFO? Where, where was it taken? And I began to muse something in the western part of the United States. And somewhere I thought it was like Nevada or Utah. And that then I saw a mountain and went into the mountain. And on this long corridor, I saw cut out of the the rock up above and pipes running down the did i already tell you this no not this anyway one. anyway so i i could see going walking going way down into this tunnel and i came to the end and there was a door with a little glass mesh you know so that it wouldn't break you know a door yeah. that led to a room and i opened the room of uh, the door in this visualization and saw men sitting around, and I thought they were looking at x-rays. There was a whole room full of men just looking at these x-rays, and I did, said, I don't know what this is about. Later on, I think a, a week and a half later, Alan said, well, we've been asked to go to NORAD so we can you know, see how that works. And I thought, and he, Alan said, is it down a long tunnel? And Yeah, that's right. Have you been there? I said, no. We said, no. But what happened when I went there, actually, it was it is as I was telling them about where I thought the UFO was, and it wasn't. It was NORAD, North American Air Defense. And when I finally went through that door at the end, in reality, the people were all sitting, and they weren't looking at x-rays. They were all looking at screens with you know, tracking of missiles. So I just thought, that's just amazing. Amazing. Not usually. I you don't see things like that, but right. I, I I was quite amazed by it and thought that's fascinating. That why would I notice see that before we went there? That's all I can tell you. Well, see, that's something that came up in in something like that came up in the interview with um, uh, Dean Radin. He's uh, uh, one of the subjects we brought up was you know why. 
why do remote viewers see this? Why are things, why do people have precognition? Why do people? And one of the limiting, not limiting, but one of the factors in it was it's very important that whatever that you see has some sort of relevance to you personally. Yeah, I guess. And, it, you know, that's something that you did. It's just that you're, 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 you're tuning into the universe with a faulty radio, as was as William Burroughs said. <laughs> well, you know, I, when we were on in the car going around to, to locations. I was sitting with the, the crew in the back seat, and would sort of envision because there was nothing else to do. Like I'd say, and it surprised me, and it surprised them. I'd say around this corner, there's going to be an old lime-colored building that's been looks like it's all boarded up. Or around this next corner is a, a bulldozer on the side of the road. Well, I just as well couldn't have been there, but it would be there. And then all of a sudden people begin to think, God, you're really freaky. <laughs> well, it, But it doesn't happen all the time at all. No, it's not reliable, it's, like you said. And maybe that's what even Coleman was talking about. It's just not repeatable. That's Except it. Except the remote viewers are pretty good. Yeah, well, in uh, one of um, oh, what, uh, Fred uh, Joseph McMonagle's book, he does say that he said oh. that all the stuff that's coming in like that is you don't even realize, you know, how much you're editing everything that comes in as it comes in. So how you know how how bad is it for subconscious? That that's that that analytical overlay they always used to talk about, um, and that you know what you expect. Um, adds so much noise to what is there or what it will be or whatever that signal is, you know. Well, does Walter believe in these things? Um, in what things specifically? Well, you, you're probably interested in this subject, I would guess. Oh, in general, yeah. I'm, I'm uh, you know, in a general sense, I'm more inclined as far as, say, for instance, Roswell. Um, I'm less inclined to accept the, the explanation. I'm more inclined to uh, something um, that was our own classified uh, technology or something that my father told me, um, which yeah. has been written about. And um, I, I, I think that there's something more in my personal experiences and from what I've been told, there's... In my mind, uh, there, there's something going on interdimensionally. There's definitely something yeah. going on perceptually. Yes. You know, I don't know. I was curious about what Bob Friend meant by a sort of a spraying on a military base, experimenting with people, with spreading, and I don't know in what way spread it, sort of a hallucinogen just to see how the troops would rea react i can't believe that we would do things like that but maybe we maybe they do experiment like that I, create I, an illusion yeah i i wouldn't doubt it um during uh, mk ultra all kinds of strange things were tried and apparently none of them really worked at least the ones that we heard about uh yeah. The, the the stuff that works you're not going to hear about. The stuff that fails unfortunately is what you're <laughs> you're more prone to hear about because if it works, it works yeah. and you keep a tight lid on it because you want to apply it effectively. Yeah. Yes. And that's very just good. Good, I, I good agree. business sense. 
Hey, Walter, are you ever going to be on the air too, or do you just sort of sit sit in the room over there? And... I'm not. <laughs> he's perfectly free to chime in when he wants, but if he he's like me, if the guest is saying things that we find interesting, we just kind of shut up. Yeah, I kind of I kind of listen. Well, it sounds like well, it sounds like I've had an interesting background anyway. What the hell? <laughs> but I am I I you know through meditation and all of that, I I have a growing sense of reality is not what what most of the people I know think is reality. Yeah. But it's very hard. You have to experience it, I think. Yeah. And I don't know if that came from meditation or asking questions when I was very, very young, like five years old. Like, what am I doing? What is I don't understand. How did I get in this body? And, you know, we're, I have hands that work and all, and I'm running the whole thing. But it, I don't think people think about it. Like, I look at my toes sometime and go, God, that's weird. Look at those. I've got five toes here. Not toes. <laughs> well, five things. And Bob, I think and you hit the ear. I think, I think ears that stick out on the side. It seems like I got some sort of. Would like we came from some sort of animal and we got their body, but we're inside <laughs> using yeah. it. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said you have to experience it. I, in very recent time, I've become more of the position that um, to write about these things, to try to share it with other people, is really useless um, because it's, it's impossible for people to read about a UFO experience or a paranormal experience or anything kind of weird and, and really understand it and grasp it. It must be experienced. Uh, uh, primarily, it must be experienced to be believed. It cannot be 100% truly believed yeah. unless the person experiences it. And then once you experience it, in my experience, I don't particularly want to share it with people anymore because it's no, useless. It, it just is. It, in fact, it, it, people can look at you in a weird way if you start talking about maybe an experience you've had because they have not had one. So, right. You know, uh, my, my wife is very interested in I think his name is George Cavassi, LA or something. He's from, from Australia. Have you ever read anything about him? Probably no. not. No, Bob. We're almost out of time here, though. Okay. Well, does that mean I just sort of float off into nowhere? I, I suppose it does, because uh, unlike most people on this show, you have no books, movies, or anything to push. You're just fun to talk to, and I like having you on the show. <laughs> well, it's nice to, to talk to you, too. As we get to talk about things that I just normally wouldn't talk about with the people around here. Yeah. You know? Well, but anyway, Walter, I enjoyed all your comments, Walter, whoever you are. I appreciated uh, kind of meeting you, so to speak. I've, I've been aware of you and heard about you for years. I, I think we oh have to continue God. because I didn't even get to ask you about um, the music stuff, uh, Steve Martin at your daughter's wedding, J. Paul Getty, oh, the yes, afternoon you had oh, with God. him, stuff like yes, that. Well, Lancelot Link has been reissued. <laughs> he told me. And I don't know if I'll ever see a cent from it. So another show, then. Yeah, so there's got to be another show where we talk about that. And I also I got a, a BMI check for Gorilla and Monsters Hop, which I wrote kind of 40 years, 50 years ago. Wow. And I just got a BMI play thing. <laughs> it's good, yeah, it's good they can keep track of you. Uh, uh, Bob, uh, <laughs> I know. You say goodbye, and then I'll hang up. No, well, I'm gonna. I wanted to say, um, at any time, if you want to come back on, even next week, I don't care. I doesn't. I don't really care on this show who's on from week to week, as long as it's interesting. So I'll talk to you off the air uh, during the week, and we'll set up another one. 
Hey, okay, and Walter, we'll talk to you sometime. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I would Greg love to. Greg, too. Yes, of okay. course. I'm just going to disappear into the ether, if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay? No, we don't mind, and it was so good having a couple hours with you, and we'll talk again soon. Good, good, great. Thank you for both of you. For both All of you. Right, thanks bye, so much. Bye. All right, see ya. Well, it's Bob Emenegger. Always a really fun talk with Bob. Always. We've had him on once before, but I talk to him once every few months and um, maybe more often now. A lot of stuff that I didn't even realize he knew. He's like, oh, I've told you this before. No, you haven't. So uh, we'll have him on again. uh, Let people digest what he said on this show and um, uh, talk to him again soon. Uh, oh, this is what's known as dead air, and it's a wonderful thing. Oh, and feedback, too. That's even better. Yeah, I should use headphones like a... I should use headphones like a real radio person, but I just refuse to for some reason. And uh, Bob's on the phone with us. Let's play the... Uh, oh, my God, I don't have it up. Let's play the opening music first. And then uh, something Bob sent to me by email a couple days ago. So... Uh, Right in Mysterio, so he's here. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. speculates that he was brought here sometime in the distant past when the earth was colonized by men from another dying planet. 
Despite the theories and speculations, the answer remains an unsolved mystery. As to where he is, that's easier. A planet some 8,000 miles in diameter, located in a remote portion of a galaxy, somewhere, somewhere in infinite space. Why is he here? That too remains an unsolved mystery. Occupied by his daily affairs, he finds little time to contemplate such questions, except for those moments on a clear night, when man pauses and looks to the star-filled heavens, and in his mind stirs an unanswered question. He searches his thoughts for an explanation, a key to the faint forgotten memory of his past. And perhaps at that moment, somewhere else in the universe, on a distant planet similar to his own, Somewhere on the other side of our galaxy, other intelligent beings wandered too, and set out in airships on an adventure through space to search for their answers. That's the uh, intro for, I believe it's UFOs Past, Present, and Future, which was the uh, final name of that documentary. Right, Bob? Oh, he can't hear me. That was it. Yeah. Uh, oh, I could. He could hear me, but I couldn't hear him. Now you're turned up. Uh I asked um, if uh, our guest again this week is Robert Emenegger. Um I introduced him last week. I'll probably post these two shows together. So if you're listening to this one, you already know who Bob is. Um, that documentary was released in, it says on IMDb, 1976. It was before that, wasn't it? No, I well, it, it, it was about that time, yeah. Oh, okay. And we talked about that. And, docu- uh, oh, go ahead. And it, it, I think it won. A, it was nominated for a Golden Globe in '76. Oh, that's nice. I was just thinking, all the uh, documentaries and things that come out now go to the uh, International UFO Congress, and they have those. Uh, what are those things called? I can't remember the awards they give out. It's a little alien holding up a. Uh, it's just an alien sitting on top of a like a film reel or something. It's supposed to look like an Oscar, but it's an alien. Uh, <laughs> no. I don't. I don't. I. I don't think Bob should enter the uh, UFOs that has begun in the um, that competition because he'll just automatically win. Uh, the, the, that was Rod Serling, obviously. If, uh, if you didn't know, reading lines written by our guest here, Bob Emenegger. So, um, a piece. You know, of, one other thing you may not know that I did the music that was under that also. Really. Bob, yes. you've, you've written a lot of music. I mean, we, I was going to talk about that during the show, too. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I w- maybe won't go into it right now, but um, so you wrote, produced, and wrote the music for that documentary? I really wrote and did the music, and I was one of Alan was really the major producer, but I was sort of on the creative side. Right. And I think... Unless there is uh, something else you want to talk about about the UFOs that has begun, we talked about the background of it last week. Who was involved? What you found out? Things that not necessarily many people knew about it, and some of the people you knew. Uh, would you like me to play? You, you did a few other documentaries. One was on hypnosis. You want me to? You sent me a couple uh, intros from that, like four minutes of it. Would you, would you like me to play that first, and we can talk about that documentary? Because I don't but, think people listening to the show well, know it's that up you to did. You. It. It's kind of an interesting project. Yes. Yeah. Well, we talked about it a little bit on the phone during the week, um, and you told me some stories that were fascinating. I'd like to hear them in again and in more detail now that we're doing the show. So let's hear the. Um, some cuts from. Oh, I'm sorry. Bob. What? 
the way it began was I was sitting and I became, I was fascinated with hypnosis, the power of it. And so I was sitting and talking to Alan Sandler about that. And within an hour, he said, yeah, okay. And he had a sponsor and he also had contacted <laughs> the, the people that we were using, Dr. Crawford and William Kroger and Martin Oren. He, he got them through a recommendation from the CIA. So, I knew they'd be kind of weird and interesting people yeah. as, as a host. Hey, let's play the intro here. That uh, you got William Shatner to do the uh, to host, I believe. It was the uh, doc- yes, it he, was. He... It was called Hypnosis and Beyond. It was released in 1980, apparently. Um, but let me play yeah. this intro here, Bob. Is that all right? Sure. Okay, because you sent him to me, and I like him, especially hearing, hearing William Shatner say it. Here we go. William Shatner do the, uh, you know, do the introduction. Here we go. Man, perceiving himself as a unique creature in all of creation. For he's been led to believe that he alone has been given a mind to think, to invent, to create. In just this century, man's growing curiosity has led him to make more discoveries than ever before in history. He discovered the innermost secrets of nature. desire to manipulate genetic code controlling human life. He, he pictured flight in his mind and now walks on the moon. And now his curiosity has led him to explore the greatest mystery of all. His own mind, that very source from which all ideas, thoughts, behavior, desires and creativity arises, the mind looking into itself. For the ancient mystics taught that hidden within the mind will be found the answer to all creation. But what has science found as it probes the mind? It has found that chemicals can alter the mind. When studying the mind, science has found one of the most mystifying phenomena yet, that man can be placed into a trance-like state called hypnosis. And while in the state is able to experience a world beyond reality, even making him seemingly able to transcend physical and mental limitations. Perhaps this hypnotic state is the door through which the answer to the mind's mysteries will be discovered. What you're about to see is based upon fact. Some will find it fascinating, and some may even find it frightening. So, with thanks to the scientific community, we now bring you Hypnosis and Beyond. I've never seen that documentary, Bob. Um, you started to tell tell uh, me and people listening how that came about and uh, who you had on it. What was it like making that documentary, and what um, what happened to you while you were making it? Did it change your mind about anything? Well, I I was fascinated with hypnosis because of another thing we'll be doing later. You may be playing something from it. It was on death, the ultimate mystery, and I had met. A, a fabulous hypnotist, and I, I heard what was capable to, of being done under hypnosis, and that's why I, uh, I got interested in this uh, hypnosis and beyond. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want. To... No, I, 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 
I uh, encourage guests to uh, be, um, what's the word, to expand upon anything and not worry about being short about what they're saying, like regular radio, because uh, as you know, listening to the show and being on last week, we basically just talk about stuff we feel like talking about. What you described to me was actually, when we were on the phone, was a, um, uh, I think you were not with, uh, was it Martin Orn? Uh, telling telling that uh, woman that she was uh, supposed to do certain things, like throw acid in people's faces and things like that? Yes. Yeah, I was very surprised that we did that particular thing, and we did it. It was very calmly done. Uh, Well, I'll tell you about any parts of it that you want. You know, in fact, it began with a recording with a group of people sitting in a semicircle, and he played a tape recorder, and he said, just to show you that it doesn't necessarily have, the power doesn't come from a person, but the words that they concentrate on. So we, it tells you to relax and do this, and then it takes them through the hypnotic stage. And uh, there were six people sitting there, and every one of them went under. So it was fascinating to see what people will do under hypnosis. I know a lot of people say, oh, people are faking it. But there was a few things that we did that I would, I can't imagine the person even faking it. And I told you, I don't know if you want me to go on to one of the things that I, I was impressed by. I want you to go on to everything but that anyway, you were impressed by. <laughs> well, um, there, there were several things we accomplished. One was William Kroger was another well-known psychiatrist in Beverly Hills who also works with the intelligence community. He was one of the first people to perform open open throat surgery only using hypnosis. What he did, he found a woman who was a good subject and they had this thing called glove anesthesia, which he hypnotized her into... uh, holding her hand out and imagining it that that was going to be the thing that anesthetizes whatever part of the body she put her hand on, her own hand. So he began the operation with a regular you know, medical setup, people sitting like an operating table, and she goes into a trance, and then he, he has her anesthetize or, or have her hand go up to her throat and hold it on her throat until her throat is anesthetized. And when she's ready, he said, she nods, okay, and puts her arm down, and they begin to do a tracheotomy. I mean, it was a very bizarre thing to see. You see them opening her throat and performing this tracheotomy, and she's totally awake, and there is a sort of a thing that was between her throat and her face so that she didn't watch it herself. Uh, that would freak me out. <laughs> but that, but apparently that hypnosis has that power. And another person we had who was uh, practicing it, he was a, I think he was a medical doctor. He had learned to, to anesthetize say, his hand. And so Martin Oren took a large pin and sort of, he held up the flesh on his back of his hand, and Martin Oren, after he had anesthetized his own hand, and ran this big pin through it. And it was like, oh my God. 
and I don't think anybody was faking. So I'm convinced that, you know, if you can have an operation and you don't have any anesthesia except your own mind controlling it, I think it was amazing. Then you wanted to know, I guess, about the young, there was a young lady, I think this is the most fascinating to me, uh, Oren put her under and then led her to a, 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 a thing that was a most circular thing about three or four feet in diameter, and it had a sort of a plastic rim around it so that whatever was put in that little area would not get out. But you'll see why in a minute. So he put her under, then he said, now, she's totally interested, I want you to pick up everything that I put in the middle of this uh, round circular area and pick it up and put it in this gunny sack. And she goes, okay. She nods, okay. So he first puts a little piece of chalk, and she reaches and grabs it and puts it in the gunny sack. And then there was one other thing that wasn't important, not even a pencil. Then the third thing, she said, now I'm going to put a very small snake there, and I want you to grab it. This is just a small one, you know, about two feet long and grab it behind its head, that's it, and she's chasing it around, finally grabs it, puts it in the sack. Then we bring out a, uh, honest to God, six-foot, five- to six-foot rattler. <laughs> you know, it was a pretty fat thing, and it sits there, coiling up and hissing. And she, he says, now, go ahead. And he was even kind of leery of it. Now, go ahead and grab it behind behind the neck, that's it, now grab it, and now put it in the sack, and she just drops it into the sack, and even Martin Oren sort of quickly closed it up and handed the sack off. Next, she, she, she said, do you know what the acid does to a penny, a certain kind of acid? And there was a couple of beakers in front of her now, and he said, uh, he drops a penny into one of the vats, and it was only about eight inches high, or maybe three or four inches around, and you could see the penny beginning to smolder, smolding as the, the acid was eating the, the copper. He said, now I want you to reach in there and take the penny out and do it, you know, quickly, grab it, that's it. <laughs> She's fooling around in the jar and finally gets it out, and then he grabs her arm and then goes into a, a vat to neutralize it. And he said... You have about seven seconds in that acid before it begins to eat your skin. So he was taking a chance, and I think he did it just to demonstrate what somebody will do. Next, there's now there was another vat there too with the smell of acid in it. And then he says to her, "You see this gentleman standing next to you?" And I didn't want to do it, but Alan, my partner, put on a white, you know, medical coat and stood next to her he said this gentleman has been the source of all the frustration that you have felt maybe over the last year or two and it would make you feel so much better if you would pick up this acid and just throw it in his face and she nods kind of uh-huh, okay she grabs the thing and tosses tosses it in, in Alan's my partner's face I didn't want to do it <laughs> And, you know, he blinks, but she, and she seemed to be pleased that she had done it. 
it, but what had happened, we they switched that to just a, it was a color water in it, that, but the smell of the acid was still floating around that area. So I thought, to me, that was kind of amazing. Sort of an innocent young woman is willing to do, grab a rattlesnake and then also throw some acid in somebody's face. It was, I, I just began to think, I wonder if this is the kind of thing that MK Ultra would be practicing or some of our uh, guys. Yeah, I, I think you're right. We talked about it a little bit, and um, you talked about who was the other hypnotist from UCLA there that was uh, in the film. There was Dr. Crawford. Now she was from Stanford. She had, I think, may have been a teacher of hypnosis also. No, yeah, there was Kroger and uh, and Mar uh, Martin Oren. Now Martin Oren did a couple things. Now Kroger. We brought in an FBI agent who where they had used hypnosis to solve a, a crime out in California, Coachelli Valley. I think it was two young people waylaid a bus full of young students, young kids, and we're going to use them uh, as a ransom. And one of the things that broke the case was they hypnotized the, uh, the bus driver and said, I want you to look at the bus driver. Tell me what's going on. And as he, now he's under hypnosis. He says, they've got guns. And, and he was scared. And he said, well, anyway, he, the point is, the, 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 the hypnotist, along with the FBI agent, they put the driver under and said, now listen, can you see those people? Do you see the vehicle they're driving? And he kind of said, yes. He said, I want you to focus on the license plate of that truck or that vehicle that you saw those people come from. He couldn't do it without, you know, he couldn't even remember. But he said, no, I want you to look at the license plate. And it's, the number is going to get bigger and bigger in your mind, just like you're in a movie theater. And I want you to give me that number. And he kind of, under hypnosis, for us, he said, like, X three, seven, whatever the number was. And that was the number that caused them to be able to go after whoever owned that pro that car and broke the case. And it was the power of concentration to hypnosis that did. It's kind of amazing, I thought. That was while you were doing the film? Uh, we did, we, we re recreated it. No, oh, okay, other words, okay. I had, and that's the way they solved it. And the hypnotist that was involved and the FBI agent, we, we, we did the thing for us with the guy by putting him in the, in, under hypnosis again so that he could recall exactly what he had done before. I don't know. Does that make, that make it clear at yeah, all? Yeah, it makes it clear. Um, after you did the film or during it or whatever, did you think that people would do things against their will that they would not normally do when they're hypnotized? Because that's the, that's the uh, idea most people have is you wouldn't do anything that you wouldn't normally do. It's just the hypnotist takes away the inhibition. No, I think that Martin Oren said that uh, people will do, however you set it up, will do something, do something that would be against their nature, but usually they don't, uh, a hypnotist, unless it's for some ulterior motive, would not lead a person down that way. As example, 
Now, this, they didn't say this, but something I thought. I said, if a man is sitting in a room, you give him a gun, and you say, you know, the next person who comes in here I know is going to, if you don't do something, he's going to kill you. And I think the unhypnotized person would go, oh, and is mine the logic of that? Sure. So say that person enters, you pick up the gun, and somebody says, you'd better get him or shoot him, and they fire at the guy. Well, he's not doing something that, that he would normally do, but he feels like his life is in danger, so he's going to act. It's very strange. They didn't want to go into what they thought they could make a person do that much. But, you know, he, he was trying to make it for the public so they wouldn't get all freaked out of what hypnosis could do. Yeah. There was a final sequence that I, I really thought was amazing. There was a young man who Orrin put under, and, and he sat in a chair, and then Dr. Crawford, who he, the young man, knew, came in and sat across from him in a chair. And, I, and he said, now, I want you to have a conversation with Dr. Crawford. So he begins talking to her, and they're having an animated conversation. Then Martin puts the young man under. And then, while he's under, asks her to get up and stand behind, behind him. In other words, come across the room and stand behind the, the young man. Mm -hmm. Then he says, all right, I want you to continue your conversation with Dr. Crawford. And he looks at the empty chair and they start talking. He's carrying on half the conversation. Like, do, do you know what I mean, Dr. Crawford? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Then he says to the young man, I want you to turn around and look behind you. And do you see a person? He turns around. Yes, I see a person. What is it? it? It's a woman. Now, look, what is the person wearing? And he says, he describes whatever Dr. Crawford was wearing. Well, now look over in the chair. I, what is she wearing? And he describes the same clothes. And then finally, he's, you could see that he's kind of getting confused. And, you know, to make this story a little bit quicker to, to tell you, he then said to uh, the young man, now, I, I want to tell you something. One of the two is not really Dr. Crawford, and I want you to tell me how, which one is. And he looks at the empty chair, and he says, well, I, I think that's Dr. Crawford sitting in the chair. And what about the woman behind you? I don't know who she is, but somebody, you, you've taken somebody out of a, a cast, and you've dressed them up to look like Dr. Crawford. So he was very confused. He said, now, I want you to do something. I want you to will, use your will to make the woman sitting in the chair, Dr. Crawford, do something, or the one behind you. Now, don't tell me what it is, but you mentally have them do it in your mind. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, my God, the person behind me is Dr. Crawford. And he said, how do you know? Because I willed the woman, the, the Dr. Crawford who wasn't there, sitting in the chair, to raise her hand. And she did, but Dr. Crawford standing behind me didn't. I don't know if I've made that clear to you, what, what happened. It was just, he clear was so me. puzzled after that. So what was is that? Is that clear the way I expressed it, or is it, yeah. is it confusing? Yeah, it's clear. I was just wondering how he, did he ever reconcile that by saying, well, that's the real one and that isn't, or was he just left confused? Yeah. 
he we explained which was the real one and brought him out of hypnosis and he looked around and he realized what it was and he just he went wow oh my god he realizes he was looking at an empty chair and thinking he was seeing dr crawford and it really he, he seemed very puzzled it's like um what the hell just happened to me so uh, hypnosis hypnosis can create illusions that somebody's there or not there <clears throat> like he had one young girl he told her that this uh, pen weighed a ton he said i'm going to put it down here on the table and it's i go ahead and try and lift it and she's reaching she's trying to move that pen you know a fountain pen yeah she couldn't budget so you can make people believe anything if you put them in a state like that yeah, but, well, you know, I think knowing how, now that Martin Oren has passed passed on just very recently, I guess I can say that he was involved in a lot of things. He was he was brought out on the Hillside Strangler case, yeah, to prove that that guy did not have multiple personalities, which uh, he succeeded in doing. Bianchi, I guess I don't know who was Bi Kenneth Bian so was, Bianchi, uh, Bianchi, whatever his name was. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was a while back, but yet that was... You never really see much of Mo, Martin Oren in the foreground, but I know that he works behind the scenes, behind the scenes and he and uh, he and the other Kroger simply work with the CIA a lot. I don't know in what way. Maybe Alpha, uh, MK Ultra experiments. Yeah. So people will do things if it's probably presented to them that they wouldn't normally do, which is kind of scary. Yeah. Well, maybe they do. You know, there, there's people that have you know, argue against that and say that they won't, but you seem to think that you've witnessed people doing things that you, you don't think they would normally do, and it wouldn't be too much of a a, a leap from what you uh, witnessed to say that people would do horrible things they wouldn't normally do or could be made to forget things that they they didn't they didn't want to have them remember i mean that that was taken to a ridiculous extreme and possibly i think so in that um the control of candy jones book did you ever read that did i ever meet it i i met the, another person who's in a, a show that we will see or you will talk about after this there was a Emile franchel who was a hypnotist and he, the Candy Jones met a, a young, some radio announcer guy who tried to help her. Yeah, Long John Nebel. She had gone Pardon? Long John Nebel. Yeah, he was basically the, the Art was. Bell of the 1960s and 70s on WOR in New York. Well, anyway, so he brought was brought to Emil. And Emil was, you know, regressing her to see what had happened to her. And apparently she was sent on, the CIA had sent her as a courier, like to Hawaii or to some place, with a message, with messages. Yeah. And what finally happened was, I think she was to commit some sort of suicide in one of the places. She was told to go to the balcony and jump off, from what I could figure. And for some reason, she just balked at that. Now, because Emil was regressing her and trying to help her out, 
he had put all of the tapes in his uh, his vault and locked it, and he knew somebody was getting into his vault. So he was describing how he put a human hair resting on the tumbler yeah. to see if anybody was coming in, and he said somebody had gotten... Now, I don't know... I don't know if the, if the FBI or the CIA was after after him for what he was doing. He was he just talked about it as something that you know he wasn't so certain about the whole story. He was just trying to help that woman overcome whatever it was that she was suffering from. Along with Neville, was that his name? Did you say? Yeah, Long uh, Long John Neville was his name. Yeah. Well, anyway, so Emil was a very good hypnotist. And I don't want to jump forward to our next story unless you wanted to, but he's the one, he was the, one of the main characters in a, the, one of the films we did, which was called Death, the Ultimate Mystery. Yeah. He did a, I don't know, I don't know we're jumping around too much? or you we, can, questions we can we jump around. To, Bob, we can jump around all we want. It's, it's, there, there's no, I don't have any rules. I don't care about anything that's proper, or if we're going in any logical order. I really don't care. If the conversation's still interesting, which it is, we'll talk about anything we want. <laughs> and this is another documentary that okay. people may not know that you um, wrote and produced. Do you want to play the intro for that, or do you just want to talk about it? Well, let me think. When we were going to talk about it, death. Death, the yeah. ultimate okay, mystery, well, yeah. You can play the opening. I, I wanted to first say that I saw a a booklet or a magazine or, or on the mummies of Guanajuato oh, yeah. at, at L.A. And it, it was very troubling. It was a photographic book on the mummies. And I just, I was freaked out by by that, the pictures that I saw on it. Have you ever seen the mummies of Guanajuato? Yes. And there's also a baseball team from Guanajuato called Los Momias de Guanajuato, believe it or not. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, anyway, <laughs> I, I was interested in two things. Yeah. Uh, Technicolor, who put up the money, wanted some like something like a Mondo Connie kind of a story. Oh, yeah. So I convinced him that, well, we'll start off with, you know, a lot of death and mummies and things like that. And they thought that, you know, they, they were all for it. But Hook in the middle in. of that film, I shifted the emphasis to look for, from a spiritual point of view, is there a possibility of life after death? So it, it really, you know, started off with, you know, scary stuff and then quickly moved into more of a search for the possibility of life after death. But if you want to play the opening... Yeah. Yeah, let's... Uh, this is uh, the opening from Death, the Ultimate Mystery, which was... Let me look at here. When was it? When did it? Uh, was it released? Do you remember, what Bob? Was that? When was that released? It says 1975 here. Oh wow! Right, right around the same time as the UFO doc. Well, yeah, I think I think that date is not right because we did it much later. But you know, oh, okay. people put on dates. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, here's the uh, here's the intro for Death: The Ultimate Mystery, written by Bob Eminger. Up 
primal force began to stir. Suddenly, in an endless explosion, the vast universe burst into a grand display of stars, suns, and worlds. From the vapors of such a world sprang human life, like a million shooting stars. And like the endless spray of the sea as it strikes the rocks, each human life bursts forth and returns to its source over and over again. In the time it takes to watch this program, 20,640 new lives will begin, and 6,960 lives will reach their end. And as much as we wish to deny it, each of us will, in our measured time, know the end called death. Poets philosophize about it. Medicine attempts to postpone it. Religion tries to soften it, but it still remains as inevitable as tomorrow's sunrise. This is a most unusual but factual account of my attempt to uncover the deepest mysteries that surround death, the ultimate mystery. Whoa, something came in a, a little bit uh, prematurely there. Uh, it sounds like there's a narrator speaking from the first person there, Bob. Well, yeah, that's true, because Cameron Mitchell is through the entire film as the camera point of view. Now, I, I asked all the questions, and I was the one who went everywhere, but Cameron may, came in and dubbed my voice over my voice and replaced it with his. And he did a very good job. You couldn't tell that he wasn't visiting all of these locales. He was quite good at it. Uh, I mean, I could have done it too, but it had so much more power with a man like Cameron who's very experienced. Yeah, if you saw the thing, you you, you wouldn't notice that there was never a slip where his lips would move in the way that I wouldn't have or that I would have. But Yes, so that's why I had Cameron be the host, and he was all the way through. But you never see him. He's always uh, from the. He is the camera. What? It, what was? I've never seen the documentary. And what? What was? Uh, what did you find out making the documentary? I mean, what, well, I found out everything I wanted to find out, but I, I who don't did think you talk I to? Want to do that technique again? Because. <laughs> because I had a hard time. It's like you—you uh, you wonder where is this person? You're looking at everything as if you're looking at him through his eyes. It was just very difficult. It was—it was hard to do cutaways, if you know what I mean by yeah. that. Yeah. I'm sitting at a table with the, you know this, these people in a small town, Corning, Ohio, asking them questions, so I could look at one of them, and he would speak to me or speak to the camera. And then while I was asking the question, I, I couldn't shoot the actor saying these things. So I had, it was a trick. It was just yeah. so hard to get around that. Yeah, you'd you have know, to cut away to away. something. That's what it was. I had a shot under the table looking up and you'd see, and then you'd hear his voice and, or I'd be looking around the room, or the camera's <laughs> looking around the room and you'd hear the voice. But anyway... Well, who did you that, talk to? To me, that was 
Pardon? Who did you talk to for the documentary? I mean, what, what, where did you go? Who did you talk? Did you go see Robert Monroe at the at uh, his institute? Did you? Uh, what else? Oh, oh, all right. It began with to satisfy uh, the the person who put up all the money, Technicolor Four Star, the distributors. Yeah. I began with uh, Cameron, or the main person, in the car going to, to down to Mexico to the, see the mummies of Guanajuato. And on the way down, he's talking about his father was a photographer during the war, so we had shots of World War II stuff. And he kept wondering, wonder, just wonder what was going through the mind of that person you see lying there just before he died. And then... Then he said, well, he had an accident in, in, a, in the film. A jeep turns over, and he talks about this accident, and he went to the hospital, and he has this near-death experience. So now he's very curious about it. So he begins by curiosity going down to see the mummies of Guanajuato. And we pull into the grave. So he, the car pulls up outside the cemetery, and you see a six-year get-out and wander through the cemetery, which you never see who that is. It's just uh, the, that which represents our hero. And he stops by a shallow grave that's uh, maybe five feet deep and looks down and says, this must be one of the shallow graves. And if you can't pay your perpetual care, they dig you up in five years and you're made to stand against the wall in the museum. Well, that's a little bit of a stretch, but anyway, that got the idea across. So he uh, then says, I am about to see the mummies of Guanajuato, and he goes into this darkened cave, which is on the, on the cemetery property, and a, the, a light comes on, and this Mexican uh, caretaker goes, click. He says, you are the American who wants to see the mummy? And Grant says, yes, follow me. And we follow into this terrible cave in which all these mummies have been taken out of their case and lined up against the wall. It was very gruesome and scary. I felt like I was facing my own bugaboos by being among them. But after two days with those mummies, you know, you finally get used to them. And you sort of say, we'd, we'd talk about one or two of them, and we'd say, you see the old lady down there? Bring her up and take this old man away. And all of a sudden, this very <laughs> stiffened person be carried off and, and placed against the wall again with kind of a... I was really facing my own demons, I think, you know, to be around dead bodies like that. But all of a sudden you realize they're nothing but empty balsa wood beings. They're gone. They're not there. And it helps you get a perspective on it. Not that I suggest everybody go to a cemetery and look at a dead body, but it does give you a perspective. Well, from there we went to, uh, off to, or we met with the, Surgeon General of the Air Force, just to, to help us in our search, and interviewed him about what happens at death, and he talked about uh, the phases that people go through. And he said, it's not, most of the time it's not painful, but I said, well, what's the possibility of life after death? Or he said, well, I don't know. I can't answer that. They don't know, but I suggest, and he picks up a book that we told him to hand to us, I would really start in Egypt. You know, if you want to know more about uh, early thoughts on death and life after death. So we arranged with Air France. They flew us everywhere as long as we 
would ha- see an Air France plane taking off and yeah. landing somewhere. So we went to Cairo, met with the uh, met with the head of the museum, the Cairo Museum, and he he talked about he we came went inside and he talked about how mummification takes place, and and when uh, we ask or our hero asks, which is just a figure something like maybe Alan would stand there with his coat and he wouldn't know who he was. Say, I'd like to see the mummies. And he says, go, go up these stairs and you'll, you'll see some of the mummies. So we went, we go upstairs and look at some of the Ramesses the second and whatnot. Then, oh God, we went everywhere. And then finally, really one of the purposes was to go to the tomb of Tutankhamun. That was, uh, it was for a particular purpose, which was for, how do I put this? Marshall Nafee wanted to do a 3D film on Tutankhamun, so we took advantage of that. Was made that was arranged for us. Yeah. Although we never shot the big 3D film for Todd Ayo. It, we went in, we went in and saw Tutankhamun, and we discussed uh, the fact that he is still one of the last uh, pharaohs in his tomb. The rest of them have been taken out and put on somewhere else. And we're in the room, we discussed the monkeys around the wall, which are monkeys drawn on the wall, which represent time and whatnot. And, you know, it's too hard to get into the detail of it. But from from the mummies of Guanajuato, we then, you know, to uh, off to Egypt. We went from Egypt to India, where I'd arranged to meet with a Swami Muktananda, and interview him. And the thing, the interesting part about him is that he discusses being, going straight line and being gone for a period of time. And during that time, how he talked to his guru. And then he said his guru came to him and said, oh, you're going to be all right. You know, just relax. And here he is with all the doctors around him. And he finally wakes up from whatever, wherever this terrible state he was in. And he said, Oh, I'm fine. You guys, you, you doctors can go now. I'm fine. And then he talks about, I know I'm jumping over this a little bit. It's very hard without the pictures. But then he said, I enjoy, I, you can see the soul departing from the body. And a lot of my devotees, I enjoy being with them at that time. He said the soul appears and he, as a, an effulgent blue dot of energy. And then he makes his hand wave and he goes and flies off like you can see it departing. And it's like, I've never heard anybody, people never heard him talk about that, but it sure was fascinating. He said, oh yes, he said, uh, he enjoys being with his devotees at that time. Now, if if I'm getting too confusing for you, please, you know, let me know. No, not confusing at all. I'm thinking of all kinds of things while you're talking. We did talk about uh, okay. scientific research into uh, near death or life after death, but go ahead. We can get into then, that in a minute. Then the next, next we went to, we had arranged to go to see Maurice Rawlings, who was a cardiologist in somewhere in the Midwest, you know, the Mideast. And... Uh, we went because he's a surgeon and he was, he's, you know, kind of a Christian guy that wouldn't believe in any of this out of body stuff. 
But he says it got to the point where he would be operating on somebody, and they would go straight line, and then they would return and talk to him about this beautiful place that they went to. And he began to wonder, what I don't know what to think about it. He said they would describe going through a tunnel that you've heard Leo going through the tunnel and going and seeing some of his relatives in this when when he's gone straight line and out of his body. In fact, he even described the patient would describe the tops of the heads of the nurses and some of the objects that were up on a shelf above the operating table. So he began to take it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. So we uh, managed to interview about three people who had had these near-death, I don't know if they asked to be near-death because they did come back, these out-of-body experiences. They were just, it was fascinating. They all talked about seeing relatives that had gone on before them. One said that he recognized his mother, although he uh, she had died before he was actually, I don't know, when he was born, but she never really saw him, but she recognized him in this ethereal space. So, and one had a, had a hellish experience, which I won't go through. It was sort of, most people say that they have had a hell-like experience, want to forget it, and they don't talk about it. So we met a man who went through some dark, terrible, like the bardos of some sort. Yeah. Now, for Maurice Rawlings, we get to the part that I was the most interested in, and that was meeting with Emile Franchelle, the same one who worked with Candy Jones. Yeah. We, we, we talked to him, and uh, Emile is sitting at a table along with a woman who you never see, and you're sort of watching them both. And he said, you know, Emile, have you ever tried to trace down if somebody's said that they've lived before? Is there any way of finding out for sure? And he said, well, if you can find somebody that lived in the 20th century or died in the early 20th century somewhere in the United States, you might have a chance to, you know, check it out. So I said, well, can we at least experiment? I mean, the voice says, do an experiment. He said, fine. So we had a, an amphitheater, a small amphitheater of people, of which he tried to find who would be a good candidate. There were two women that were quite good, and we decided he said, we'll, we'll regress both of them. Uh, one woman turned out that she apparently ended up in the Midwest somewhere, and she didn't have the address, and she didn't know the date. So we recorded her anyway. And then we had a woman who was so remarkable she was, uh, I think she was about 40 years old when we, we did this, and we filmed it totally. You see him sitting next to her and talking to her, and he, he puts her under, and she goes back, and then all of a sudden, she has a smile on her face, and he said, oh, I see you're, you're smiling. She said, yes, I'm going to be again. He said, oh, that's nice. Well, what? tell me more about it. And then she all of a sudden, her face changed to sort of a, oh, no. And he said, what's wrong? It didn't last. It didn't last. And she said, I was only lasted for eight hours. And he said, well, who were you? And she didn't, she said, I'm baby Jane or something. And she was so upset that she had not only lived this very short time. 
She said, well, go forward in time until maybe something else happens. Now she comes up. And I'll never forget, she she let out a sort of a, not a scream, but she, she was very upset and her eyes started to open. He closed them. He said, it's Eloise. And he said, who's Eloise? It's my daughter. What happened? She ran out on the main street and was run over by a, a wagon. And he said, was she hurt? She wasn't hurt. She was killed. And she was sobbing on and on. And he pulled her away from that. I said, well, wh- where are you? Wh- what year is this? And she said, it's 1897. And where are you? She said, I'm in Corning, Ohio. And uh, what year? what's the date? And she said, it's uh, December like 11th, 1897. He said, where is Corning, Ohio? And she said, well, this is the town where I grew up. And she starts to describe the town. And there was enough things that she said that we decided, and Annie Spielberg, you know, Stephen's sister, was our line producer. She went back there and she checked out a lot of the things the woman said. So we said, hey, we're going. There's a camera crew to this little tiny dried-up town, Corning, Ohio. And she talked about the school. Now, remember, when she's lying on a table back on the, in her bench, or whatever you call it, couch, back in L.A., she's describing a lot of these things of which we kept notes on. She talked about the town, the little the schoolhouse that she went to, the cemeteries, the fact that and Camille asked her things like, well, what, what's in the town? She said, well, there's, a, there's mining. It's a mining town, okay. And what, 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 what was going on? It was rain that runs through the town. You want to say something? Yeah, uh, you're starting to cut out because the... Uh... The Skype here isn't working too well. But uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, are you getting the sound at all, or should we do it again sometime? Well, if it gets too bad, I will probably try and switch to a cell phone. But for right now, we're all right. Uh, it, probably everybody just heard me say, God damn it, because because uh, you were cutting out. Let's see how it goes. Sometimes it uh, just happens for a little while. Okay. Do you want me to continue with the story? Yes, please. Anyway, so he said, you see a train that runs through town. And he said, yes. He said, can you see what's on the side train, you know, what's written? And she said, I don't know. I can't. I don't know what it says. And then when we were, then she said, we called it the zigzag and wobbly, the kids. <laughs> now, we went through her, her husband worked at she went through a whole thing about what shops, the people. I hear something going on. Are you okay? I'm okay. We're we're still trying to bowl through these problems. If not, I will I will put you on a speakerphone. But that means I'll have to call you All back. Right. Please, please go on. I'm sorry about the technical problems. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to get off this station. But um, we'll see if it works. Go, go go ahead, Bob. I'm sorry about that. It's all right. Um, anyway, she talked about the train, and it was the zigzagging and wobbling. Now, 
we went to a little uh, restaurant that was right near where the de- depot was, and there were some of the old timers. Now we asked them questions. Like she described how the houses used to get all kind of so dirty brown, and she didn't know why. They described it. Not going in the trains that were running. He said that there was a lot of stuff. And she said about the train. We asked with Ainsville and Western. Then one of them volunteered, but the children, all the kids used to call it the zigzag and wobbly, which is exactly what she said. She also mentioned the Corning Breeze newspaper that was there, several things that gave me, including where her husband was buried, which was just outside of town. And I found a tombstone with his name on it. So it was just enough evidence for me to say, this is, this is quite remarkable. When she came out of the trance in L.A. after doing the regression, she said, I've never heard of that town. I've never been there. I don't want to do this again, and they are very nervous. We took her all the way to her last breath back in Corning, and she said she was lying there, and she said, I'm so sick. I'm so sick. Where are you? She said, can you pull back and see yourself lying there in bed? And she said, yes. What do you see? Well, that's one of the reasons why I just wanted to stop coming to Kill Radio because half the time it's uh, the Skype doesn't work, and then it's embarrassing having a nice guest on like Bob and having to do things, say things like "I'm gonna call you back." Wow, here's a good song, oh, old song by. Oh, you know what I'll do is I'll play one of the songs that um, that uh, Bob wrote, and uh, I will call him up. This is. <laughs> <laughs> a song Bob Emenegger co-wrote called The Gorilla with Bert Convy, if you remember who he was. We were out of school oh well. with We'll figure it out here do. in a minute. So we jumped in my car and we went to the zoo. Having lots of fun just walking around. Looking in the cages when I heard a funny sound. Somebody and one began to shout. I turned around and my eyes bugged out. He's out of his cage. He's on a rampage. Swinging his arms all over the place Fiery red eyes and a big ugly face Jip, 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 jip Gorilla He climbed on a bus and he rode downtown Stopping all the traffic for miles around He heard some music coming from a record shop Jumped off the bus and he started to pop arms all over the place dancing rock and roll with a grin on his face jip 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 he heard some music coming from a record shop Jumped off the bus and he started to pop. 
He stopped his dancing and looked up in the sky. A flying purple paper leader was flying by. He reached up and grabbed him and he gave him a hold. Okay, we will uh, pick up from um, uh, with this woman that said she was she was living in Corning, Ohio, uh, in a previous life, and that you had found out a lot of the uh, details that she'd provided about that previous life turned out to be true, even though she had real no real way of knowing about this person's life or what had happened to her. And when the um, Skype wasn't working, you were basically describing her. Uh, that she was in a lot of pain when she was dying and that um, at some point just wanted to die because she was, she was uh, had some kind of horrible disease. Yes. All right. Well, we finally got to the point where we she was lying there and says, now I want you to go forward, go forward to the time that you were no longer. And she said, oh, I'm so sick. And she sort of, her arms dropped on the side of the couch. It was, you could see she was in pain or said, oh, I was so sick. I don't want to be here now. And she kept repeating, I don't want to be here now. And he would say, yes, you were so sick. She said, I'm so old and sick. How old are you, he asked. And she said, oh, I'm 40-something. I thought, oh, man. Well, then finally... In this droopy way, she finally said, I don't want to be here now. And he said, well, go forward until you're no longer. And she goes forward and goes, oh, I'm so glad I'm not her anymore. I'm so glad. I I was so sick. And he sort of says, yes, you were so sick. So finally, she uh, sort of, he, he brings her out of the trance or the hypnosis and when she comes around, he said, oh, how do you feel? And she said, I feel fine. She said, do you remember what you were talking about? She said, I, I don't quite remember, but, and her voice was totally different than the woman who was under hypnosis. All of a sudden she was like, uh, you know, a 40 year old businesswoman said, and I, he asked, have you ever been to Corning, Ohio? And she said, no. Said, do you remember a, a woman that, that lived there and died there? Absolutely not. I, I just, and she was so adamant about. I've never been there. I don't remember any woman that you're talking about. And uh, it, it seemed like such a cutoff from what she had just gone through. For we, we, she was under hypnosis for over an hour with her details. And her voice now was stronger, and she just shook her head and implying that I don't, I've never been to Corning. Corning. I'm not, I don't know who that woman was. She was almost in disbelief. Only after listening to the tape would, would she finally say, gee whiz, I can't believe that's me. So I have a feeling that under hypnosis, people can be, can forget. I often think of it as very much like uh, if you've ever had a dream, I say, two or three weeks ago, did you ever have kind of a very vivid and interesting dream? Or can I ask you if you even remember your dream? Who, me? Yes, you. 
Yeah, I have them, but I've never found them to be precognitive, at least the ones that I remember, if that's what you're asking. Well, no, actually, I mean, the dreams, to recall them in detail, you probably had several dreams, but you don't recall them especially. I'm right. talking about the dreams in detail. Yeah. And I have a feeling that prior lives are something very similar to that. You may have experienced a dream, but you, you, you just don't remember it. And lives may come and go in the same way, and you don't particularly recall them. I guess I told you that I went through a... And I had somebody who wanted to use, to show off their wares as a hypnotist. And I agreed to, although we had already decided on Emile Franchel, we were in Alan's studio before we both owned the studio. And I was lying on the couch and this woman, who I don't remember her name, but she was well known. She said, have I ever been hypnotized? And I said, no. Have you ever been regressed? And I said, no. She said, well, lie back. I may have told you this on the phone earlier. She said, what bothers you in this lifetime? And I said, uh, I think making a decision because I don't want to make the wrong decision, so I'm troubled by it. Okay, put that aside. Now she starts going back. And she said, I, I, where are you now? And I must be, I was aware of everything I was saying. I wasn't hypnotized, I don't think. But I said, I'm... I'm in a barrack, a whitewashed barrack, somewhere in the east, and I can see my face. Can you see yourself in the mirror? And I said, no, I can't see my face, but I can see I'm in a uniform. She says, now, okay, what happens now? I said, well, I, I'm ordered to go to the, the commander's little area within the uh, this barrack, or he, where he is in a room, in a whitewashed, you know, room. It's not a very fancy place. And he's got a a, slant, a slanted desk in which there's a, a map of the area. And he's pointing to the map to a certain spot, and then he's looking at me and as if I'm supposed to get what he's talking about. And there was another young officer with me. So I realized I'm supposed to, I have an assignment. And she said, what do you do next? I go outside and we're mounted on, there are three of us who are mounted on horses. We start riding and it, the area looked like, I could see the wagon wheels that made ruts in this dusty road. It was in the, sort of in the country or up in the mountains near the country. And I could see trees that were, were, were like winter time, very tall trees on either side of the road kind of like where I moved to, Arkansas, so nothing like something I remember before. Mm -hmm. And I kept writing and I knew I had an assignment. And I wrote and I wrote and finally, I was sort of not pushing it too much, but we came around a bend and I looked to my right and there were four cannons that were abandoned. And I re realized that there was a, a skirmish there and we had lost, lost it and some of our men were killed. And out of nowhere, I began to cry in front of this woman. It was it was ridiculous. I, I finally came around after I woke up out of it, although I wasn't asleep. And I told her what it was, and and uh, she was describing that that probably was some prior life. So the point is that you don't have to be totally knocked out, but you can be guided back. Now whether this I had. My own experience, or was the experience of somebody else, is quite detailed. So I realized that uh, you know you can have a, a guided meditation 
recall, but at, with that woman in Corning, Ohio, she was totally gone, totally. She didn't. She didn't even remember what she, the story she had told us, and she didn't want to do it again. I guess that it bothered her when she did that that uh, regression, because she said, "I just don't want to do this again." She, in fact, when we wanted to do some pickup shots, I think Annie Spielberg asked her to come back, and she said, "No, I don't want to go through that again." So some people, it leaves a scar on them. Mine was not a scar, it was just like, I wondered that word, where did that story come from that I went through? So that's all, you know, that I wanted to tell you about it. Yeah, when we were talking last week, I was saying, well, I guess there's a few models for that. One is the one everybody would think of, that you had uh, did have a past life and you were recalling it. Two, that you somehow made it up and you or anybody made it up and had just enough details from somewhere to be able to uh, um, tell the story, which is, you know, the, that's disproven by some of the research. And three, which is what I think is might be closer to it, is that everybody has access to all information from, from you know, all times, maybe the future, uh, the future and the past, and s- maybe their life went through something at some point or it's it's similar to something they've gone through and they've just been able to tune into that if that makes any sense well it does but i've, I've never been interested in like uh, american history and the civil war and things like that yet my experience was with caissons was, was another part of it writing on the back of one and i just i'm really not that fascinated with you know early american history so but that's what, but that's what I what came up. In other words, it didn't reflect the story that I would even think of. Yeah, I told you this also, which might be something that I imagined. The same woman, or was another one? I tried it one other time, and I could see myself lying in state in sort of like a Westminster type of ch- chapel lying when I had a black robe on with gold trim on it, on the sleeves, and I I felt that my my men, whoever that, were, were passing by me and sort of in a reverent way. And I thought, I wonder, I don't know, maybe maybe that I made up. I don't, I don't know. So when you go off into these tangents, now, you know, I told you, though, the one experience that I had that everybody could vouch for, which wasn't and had nothing to do with hypnosis, I don't think, but more like remote viewing. I don't know if I already told you this about. I was in the studio with uh, the head of uh, Norton Air Force Base, the depository, and Allen, and we were trying to figure out where the craft that landed at Holloman Air Force was taken. Did I already tell you that? Maybe I told you personally. Yeah, I think you did tell me, and no, you haven't You haven't told the story on there about going going through the base and talking to different people? Well, well, that was interesting to me. It's like I was very interested in remote viewing. And I, there's a guy on the West Coast that I used to sit and we used to do this picking up objects and I would tell him what I thought, where it came from and and vice versa. It was a wonderful thing that I enjoyed doing. It's like once you get in the groove of it, it's fascinating. Anyway, back to 
in Alan's studio, before it became both of our studios, they asked me to try, because I've done things like that before, where did they, where did the craft, where was it taken? So I tuned in to the western part of the United States, to a mountain, and I wasn't sure where it was, Colorado, and I, and I could see that I could enter this cave-like, this long tunnel, so I will enter the tunnel, and I could see it's all carved out of this rock, and there are tubes, there are electric tubes or something running, tubes, I mean, like pipes running along up above me yeah. all the way, and you keep going, going, going. Finally, I came to the end, and I saw a door that led into a room, and I could see that the door had uh, maybe a 12 by 12 window with that mesh in it, you know, it's an unbreakable glass. And I looked in, and then everybody said, well, why don't you enter? So I entered the room, and it was a very large room with men sitting, looking what I thought they were looking at, uh, uh, x-rays. There must have been about 10 men all sitting around consoles looking at x-rays. And I could see it was a very large room. Then I came away from that, and Alan said, I said, I don't know, I didn't see any craft or anything, but Alan was then informed, by the way, that one of the places the DOD one said we, that we should be going to was NORAD, North American Air Defense. And so Alan had not been there either. He said, do you enter the a mountain? And they were saying Cheyenne Mountain or something. Yeah. And there's a long car, a tunnel that you followed, and then you enter a room, and he said, he said to Alan, well, have you already been there? And he said no, and he didn't go into any detail. But when we went there, it was just about like in this precognitive thing I saw. I just was amazed, because I went in the door this time, same kind of a door, and the men were sitting there, but they were looking at uh, radar screens with graphs of all of them, which listed showed all of the missiles that were being accounted for, sort of a streaks across the screen uh-huh. in different colors. And there was a huge screen in which that, that they were following whatever was up there. But I, 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 the only thing I could think of it was precognition that we sometimes, and it was the only time I can remember, see something before it happens. I know it happens to remote viewers, but I was, it was the only experience I've ever had where I saw something just like later seeing it. So I don't know what to think about it. So yeah. maybe we... Well, we talked about it last week, and I, I, I said my, I think my current model for that was, and it was from Dean Radin, actually, I, I believe he told me this, or maybe it was Joe McMonagall in, in the interview they said yeah. that the things that tend to work better for, I don't know, uh, uh, precognition or or remote viewing are things that you have a personal connection to somehow, like something in your personal future. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, that would make sense. And that's why they used to, and you can talk to your friend Hal Putoff about this, that's why they used to, uh, when they were first developing the protocols, they would actually take the person to the place that they were viewing to show it to them later. <laughs> yes. Well, I, th- I think it's quite amazing. I mean, 
Rudolph is a wonderful person. I told you how that he was involved with the uh, the intelligence community going to China yeah. doing research. I was blown away with the reports that he that he came back with, and I wanted to through my partner who was going to do a project with China, some simple-minded project like you know comparing cultures. I think I told you this. And then I thought, I got in the middle of it, and I said, this is sort of dull. And then I talked to Putoff, and he sent me a lot of the remote viewing, that not remote viewing, but experiments they had done in China with the uh, uh, intelligence community. They, they paid for it, for him to go over there. And what he was witnessing, and it's all, it was all documented, was young Chinese, I think they may have been, Qigong students, I'm not sure, who were in two isolated rooms. And there were people, scientific people from China involved in this. I had all of their names and who they were and what what institutions they were from. Where the one that I stopped at and just got hung up on was they had, they'd handed a young boy in one room, I don't know what size the room was, they had, he had stills of what happened still very poor look like films stills that showed the progress of these events he would hold a little object that was the size of maybe two and a half inches like a matchbook or a match box the very small kind yeah and he would hold it in their hand and they would say i guess he, i don't know what you say in chinese but he was saying it's going it's going it's going, it's gone. And then he opened his hands and the object was gone. Then in another studio, quite isolated from that one, the other young man would say, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's here. And then he would have it in his hand. Well, this sounds like made-up science fiction. Yeah. But then they put a, they put a, science, a little uh, sound sensor with it, a little thing that would beep. So then they did it once again, and he held a little object, and you could hear it going beep, 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 beep. And then as he started to let it go, I heard beep, 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 and the beep disappeared. Then in the other room, you heard beep, 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 and the object was in his hand. Now, the explanation for that, I just, I'm flabbergasted. I don't know if some people are that advanced, but maybe they are. And when I mentioned this to Alan, my partner, to talk to the Chinese about, we, we wanted to see him, we gave the names of the scientists and where it was done, they uh, immediately said, oh no, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. Oh no, no, no. Boy, that put an end to it. And I think it's because the intelligence community had paid for uh, Putoff's trip to China while they were doing their research at Stanford Research Institute. So I guess, you know, they uh, just didn't want to get into it. And I can see now why, because they don't particularly want anybody to know maybe how advanced of experiments that they had done. Yeah. And I, maybe I'm telling stories out of school, but the fact is <laughs> Alan would confirm it. And he did talk to the Chinese who, they didn't deny it. Oh, yes, they did. They said, you know, we don't believe in that. So I knew that we would never get around to doing that kind of a 
program. Yeah. But the, but the one thing it turned out to be, as I told you, uh, somebody he knew at Disney said, well, I'd like to do a sort of a comedy and, and wrote up a script and sort of a document, not a documentary, but a live action thing about a young guy who goes to China and, and meets a girl over there. And I had nothing to do with it except I wrote the opening music, which was, you know, I'm on my way to China, you know. I, I, well, I won't sing it for you. It was <laughs> I was waiting for you to sing it, Bob. The, Let me see how it goes. Now I've practically forgotten that I didn't play it for you. It's, the, 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 it's the what I'm am I doing in It's the what am I doing in China song, right? Well, it was it was a very lightweight kind of thing you'd expect at Disney. You know, the guy goes to China. Everybody's wondering, are you ever coming back? You know, I'm I'm on my way to China, and I'm, and he meets a girl on climbing the the, the China the Wall of China. And they kept changing some of the lyrics, but, uh, you know, but it was, it was recorded, and I think they shot a pilot, but it just didn't work, and I'm disappointed, because I would love to investigate what Put Off was into, and he's a, you know, I told you, he's a dear, dear guy, and I probably told you that he and Targ were the first people to show up in L.A. when he heard that we were going to do the UFO show, I think, uh... He, they both came down, and uh, we talked about it. And I always kept him apprised of everything we were doing. And he knew from he had a different perspective on it. He knew that the Navy probably knew more than the Air Force did, which we never talked about too much. Yeah. But anyway, that that's kind of the story. That there ain't no more to the story that I can think of right now. So, so put off and Targ came down while you were working on the UFO documentary and. What do they do? They yeah, just wanted to hear what was going on. Working on it. From your perspective, does Putoff know something about the government UFO thing, or is he just? Because my idea is that he thinks he can find out by using his contacts, and that, that he's gone as far as he can with that, and so maybe at this point has has satisfied his curiosity about how much at least the U.S. government knows about it. He he told me that he went through the Navy. That he was, and I was told that that there was a copy of the film that was shot in the Navy sink. I don't know how you spell that S Y N C, or and I'm sure they don't mean like a bathtub sink, but it <laughs> must be a acronym for wherever they they may have gone. And that the Navy really was more in more in touch than the Air Force about these subjects and how yeah. they knew. I don't know. Remember uh, that... Uh, that well, they patrol that, more of the I, Earth. And in Washington, where there was a contact with some theoretical alien thing through Navy guys, well... Yeah, we talked, I think we, we talked about that last time, actually, on the show. Yeah, so I don't need to repeat that. But apparently it's, it's all very real. In fact, I was trying to get Alan and I were trying to get the Navy or the DOD to look into uh, more information about contact and disclosure and the steps that would be taken as a, in a theoretical situation, what would be the protocol if one of these things would come in and land and what would we do? And they, uh, they didn't seem to be interested in pursuing that. They said, you know, we've, all, we've had enough uh, exploration of UFO stuff. So, and it was a new 
new guys at DOD, so it just didn't go anywhere. And I was kind of sorry because I thought that would be fascinating. I still think it would be fascinating to know their acknowledgement of how they would handle a disclosure like that. Well, disclosure would be to the government, I mean, to our government. Yeah. First, the military, and then that's all. I can't think of anything more. <laughs> the uh, Well, my idea, and I keep hammering on this on the disclosure idea, is that there's nothing real. Well, Grant Cameron's idea is that it's already happened. I mean, government's pretty much acknowledged that they know that's at least that there's the existence of something that's not human, that's intelligent. But past that, they don't quite know what it is and what or what to do about it. So that's the way it stays. And that 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 would only be the only disclosure would be kind of we don't really know any more than you, except that yeah, it really I, is I an told established you that, fact. Uh, how Coleman and I, I said, Coleman, tell me what experiments have you done in communication? And he he said, well, we went to a lot of trouble, and he was referring to probably like the remote viewers and a few things like that. Yeah. He said it just was not reliable. And I told you about um, Lily, working with Lily. John on, Lily, he yeah. was helping us high, communication on one of our sci-fi films about how we would arrange he guided as much as we could you know uh, uh, between two people an alien and one of our people and there would be on the screen on our side we would put a picture and on their side we would give it a name and then they would try and uh, give it its name and the communication would be done that way but I don't know if that would work you know I don't, I've never, it's never been done so, but he said, see, when uh, Colonel Coleman says it's not reliable, that would imply that sometimes it did work, or at least they thought oh, yeah, it did. I, uh, totally. You know, they're very aware that these things work, but it's not repeatable. And Well, I thought remote viewing was somewhat in the same category. You know, they get close to what something looked like, but it wasn't exact. Yeah. You know, I remember some of the things that one person would see a typewriter project that and they would write, they'd show a picture of the bar of a typewriter, but it was not that easily defined. Yeah. You know, it is not like, the only one was the one where I'm, I've forgotten which one who, oh, I would remember his name, who saw that Russian research atomic place in the Soviet Union. I'm sure you must remember this. But uh, I, I did know well, his name. It, well, Joe McMonagall was the one that saw the um, atomic submarine, the huge atomic submarine. Well, though this one was this was a very good one, a very good guy, and I should have prepared for you. Oh, was and, he the uh, policeman from um, Burbank? Yes, or up in Northern California. Yes, yeah. that was him. Damn it, I can't remember his name, but I'm sure the listeners know who it is. Yeah, and he drew a picture of the what he saw in this uh, research and development atomic site and he, he saw the buildings and then he saw railroad tracks in front of it with a huge crane it's put off described this very well I have all these little sketches that they drew and he said well there you know as far as our intelligence goes there is no big crane or a railroad track running in front but to make extra sure, they sent up the spy satellite, and all of a sudden, there it was, just as he pictured it and drew it. So that uh, that 
set things in motion. And he, I thought that was a very good, good example of proof that somebody is seeing something. Yeah. That was the clearest one. Yeah, uh, Pat Price was his name. Pat Price, absolutely. And I was told, I don't want to get into too much of it, that he had been um, snuffed by the Soviets. I don't know when, how or why or how they did it, but I think Putoff reminded me that they sort of got to him and put a stop to him. Yeah, I can't he, imagine that, but that's what I was told. Yeah, well, he had a, apparently had a heart attack, and it, there wasn't really anything wrong with him before that. I mean, it was old enough that I guess it would have happened naturally, but um, I, I've heard that rumor before. I, I never realized it put off thought that was a possibility. The fact that he thinks it's a possibility either means, one, he's paranoid, or two, he knows that it's possible. Yeah, well, apparently, were they trying to, you know, stop a goat's heart, too? I mean, everybody's fooling around with all kinds of stuff that we Well, in fact, that old thing about the magic of believing, which is a book I had a long time ago and still do, in some African nations, the witch doctor had a stick gun, and they believed in him so much, he would point it at someone, and, you know, as if he shot them, they're going to die, and they often did. Yeah. It's almost like you implanted an idea that's so strong that it happens. I just remember that I haven't looked at that book in years and years, but it was called The Magic of Believing. I've heard about that, and I've heard about that book. Uh, I interviewed Lynn Buchanan once, who was another one of the remote viewers, and at that yeah. time, and this was in the mid-1990s, I think, or 96 or 7, he told me that he had, had uh, come up with some sort of device that would block remote viewing and it, that it worked really well. And it wasn't even a device. It was just some object. But he wouldn't tell me what it was. Well, so, maybe something absorbs uh, electrical impulses or I don't know. God, I, I imagine it, a person, a yogi apparently, can block his mind so you don't get it. And I, I've heard of yogis influencing somebody at a distance. Remember I told you about Yogananda? In his writings, his teacher, they were in a field of which there were artichokes or some sort of vegetable growing. Yeah. And he, they noticed a man way off in the corner stealing some vegetable thing. And his teacher stopped him in his tracks by mentally, and the guy dropped it and ran off. And it was, it was really, he described it, he that his teacher was capable of, you know, implanting ideas in people or scaring people, or I don't know. So I think the mind is very powerful. Well, you know, that's a trouble. I just saw the film called The Master. Oh, yeah, I want to see that? that. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I, I would like to see it. It's supposedly about L. Ron Hubbard, but they don't say that because they, they could get in trouble, oh, obviously. Oh, I didn't know that part. Well, the guy, you know, was, was also partly you get the idea that he was just winging it. He just made up whatever he wanted to, and people went along with him. I mean, that's the impression I got from watching the film. It was so well done, and the main actor was outstanding. I don't think it's going to get much, uh, many bucks from, from a film. The best acting I've ever seen between two people was it, what is his name? Uh, his brother, walking. Joaquin Phoenix, you mean... Uh, the brother, which I don't know which one the brother was, but... Who, River Phoenix, the one that's and, dead? Pardon? 
River Phoenix, the one that's dead. When you say Joaquin as an actor, all I think of is Joaquin Phoenix. Was he in that movie? Oh, he was. My wife says yes. Was it him or his brother? I don't know which one it is. It was. It was Joaquin Phoenix. Well, he was so excellent. My God. I've never seen a performance like that. uh, It was worth that just to see that, his his tour de force as a man who's a little bit mentally off and maybe really is off. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she said. She said, "I think he is." Um, yeah, I, well, I like Anderson's films. They're, 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 um, they're. I'm trying to think of the word. They're not really plodding, but there, there's something going on in every scene. You can't really pull anything out of the movies and have it be what they are. What's his? What the last one was was uh, "There Will Be Blood," the one with um, uh, with Daniel Day Lewis. I really enjoyed that film too. Well, this is, uh, it was a somewhat of a torture, I thought, because I, it <laughs> went on for a while, and I got kind of antsy, to tell you the truth, because I didn't know where are we going. It didn't really end up with any conclusion. Huh. You know, the conclusion was there was a man who was so masterful, he was so powerful, like uh, anybody who was a guru to people, just playing with them almost, you know, like there was a scene in which he's dancing around, uh, all of a sudden he's just singing songs and he has a bunch of women naked around him and nobody can quite figure out why they're there. It's just that he is calling all the shots and people are going along with it. Yeah, you know? well, that's that, that's what happens. I asked my father once, I said, what was your worst fear about when I was growing up, what would happen? He goes... I, I said that I'd be working at McDonald's or something. He said, no. All I was afraid of is if you'd let somebody else do your thinking for you. That was my biggest fear. <laughs> well, I, there are people who do that. And, and if somebody's got a dominant personality, I I mean, uh, like Joe, Jones. Remember the Jones case? Is that what it was? Uh, Jim Jones. The yeah. one who, who had the cult in some far-off land, and he, he finally told them all, the Jonestown told them all to take cyanide or whatever they did at the end, and they did. Yeah, most of them did it willingly. A few tried to get away, and some did, but yeah, most of them did it willingly. Jim Jones, Guyana. Yeah, Jim Jones. I remember that. We had, we included that, by the way, in the film on, on hypnosis. The power of oratory. The people who are strong can convince people through through their speech and dynamics to do things. Yeah. Like political leaders. Yeah, political, anything from Jim Jones and Charles Manson up to, you know, a dictator or a, even a quote-unquote legitimately elected political leader will uh, I, I be able to convince people Hitler to believe an example, and he's giving his speeches and speeches, and, and uh, toward the end, talking about the people who were willing to do most anything he said, and you hear his voice continue on, and then you saw the bodies at Dachau all stacked up, all these dead people, mm-hmm. which really came about by his personality, his strength in ordering it to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and nobody really, well, not many people just said, wait a second. And if they did, they were either dead or gone or left because they realized there wasn't really anything they could do about it. Um, I remember when we were doing USO shows, they took us to Dachau. Oh, really? And it was, hmm? it was very grim. Yeah. 
What was and you realize that? And I, I, it's true. And I mean, my God, I don't mean not to get into it at all. I just the power of the orator, which would be yeah. Hitler or whoever you're, whoever's talking, who's leading you. Yeah, or or their control of things, which controls the information you get, which leads you to believe you came to your conclusions on your own when you've come to it by by uh, uh, erroneous information or, or not the full story. Yeah, it's like we could easily drift off of the things that are happening to us in our country, and I don't want to because right. I don't want to bring in current politics. But Well, I, I, I sort of did, Bob, but... <laughs> That's another subject, really. Yeah. No, no, I, I sort I, of did, and I've talked about it on this show before, and the, the listeners know how I feel, so... Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I think I've run out of any information for you, but I'd be happy to, you know, if you feel like you wanted to pick up a, a section later where things got a little garbled, we'll just do it, you know, if if you want to do that. Nothing got garbled, Bob. I, you know what? Every time you're on, and you've been on twice now, I keep wanting to get to your show business stuff, and I never do. Well, well, well I, the I, other stuff, like the songwriting and... Um, uh, well, the thing I want you to, wanted you to know that that I did the scoring for most of the things I ever did. Yeah, you know, I, I did it because out of love of just doing it. You know, you know, I started with doing Mattel commercials. Well, I would know at UCLA doing musicals with Carol Burnett, and you probably know that. No. And yeah, well, she was one of the stars of some of our shows, and then I went on. We started doing USO shows, and she went. I don't know if I told you. She no. went on one of the early ones where we went to White Sands, huh. and uh, she she had uh, a gig in Las Vegas. So when she was through with it, through with her show, they flew her in a B twenty five all by herself from <laughs> White Sands to Las Vegas, and we flew back in a B seventeen or a B twenty nine. I don't know. It was a huge bomber, yeah. but. We got, we went everywhere, uh, you know, to Taiwan, to Japan, to North Africa, to England, Germany, France, all the countries. Got to see a lot of, in fact, I remember going to atomic cannon sites in, in Germany. And I, we did have a G12 sort of rating, meaning that we had the right to do what a G12 would do. Mm -hmm. And we, I, I think we were pretty well vetted before we did that. And I almost think yeah. that maybe that helped us ease into doing this D Department of Defense project, too, because I'd already, you know, been through the screening. Right. And I missed doing that stuff. That was just great. You know, I was carefree and uh, having a good time. <laughs> When was this, Bob? When was this? And were you doing this right out of school? Right after UCLA. Oh. And as a matter of fact, it was right before. And hey, by the way, it makes it sort of amuses me. I looked up Bert Convy, and there is our song. Somebody put pictures to it. Yeah. The Monsters Hop. And yeah. my God, there were like twelve thousand people had seen it. I, so you must have found that somewhere, too. I found it, and I've got it queued up, ready to play. <laughs> if you want to play it, you can. I was just amazed to hear it. 
Yeah, the, this is the Monsters Hop, written in 1958 by by uh, Bob Emmenegger, who's uh, my guest right now, and Bert Convy. And this is very appropriate because Halloween's coming up. So uh, let's let's uh, hear that one, Monsters Hop. <laughs> Strange noises coming from a house on the hill So I crept up to the window and looked over the sill My heart almost stopped, I nearly died of fright By the dim candlelight I saw the strangest sight There was Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman too Dancing with some zombies, what a ghastly crew Viola the vampire was doing the bop And everything was rocking at the monster's hop Crazy witch doctor was dancing with a ghoul The organ was playing, but no one was there And the headless horseman was combing his hair There was Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman too Dancing with some zombies, what a ghastly crew The old vampire was doing the pop And everything was rocking at the monster's hop Upon the hill The night I saw the monsters dancing Ooh, what a thrill The wind did howl The night was black I nearly lost my mind I'm never ever going back There was Frankenstein and Dracula And Wolfman too Dancing with some zombies What a ghastly crew The old the vampire was doing the bop And everything was rocking At the monster's hop There it is, Monsters Hop. Could you hear that, Bob? Yeah, I did. It brought bad memories. I, you know, I remember when Bert and I would go, I think I may have told you this, we'd go into a studio, and Mercury Records was put up the money, and that, apparently uh, they're probably not the same owners anymore, but it was like they were. we'd start recording, and there'd be pound, people pounding on the door. I guess they were from the mafia who was part of represented Mercury Records. It was just weird. I... I guess I told you that also Bert talked me into singing a live concert in Santa Monica Auditorium with Earl Bostick, and we sang uh, motorcycle, you know, motorcycle boots. What was the song? Well, it was the motorcycle song that made him, his group, very famous. Okay. And Emmeline Henry sang with us. Uh he wore a black leather jacket and a motorcycle boot. The fool was the, high, the terror of Highway 101. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that or not. Not that one. Well, that was a big hit that Bert had before I ever met him. Yeah, because he was. I remember was a... walking out on that stage, and 
I've never, you know, had to sing in front of a group of people or that song either, and Emmeline was with me. And I remember as we looked down on the audience, there was this steam of young kids just swirling around in front of us. It felt like, you know, you could feel their humidity. (laughs) That's what I remember mostly about it, peering over the edge and seeing these crazed young teenagers as we're singing our little ditty. One other thing, I don't know if this is not that important. It's all important. After, after appearing on the Larry Finley show, do you ever remember anything like that? It's a hit or a miss? Oh, I've heard parodies of it. I've never actually heard the show or heard of it, really. Well, anyway, we sang one of these songs, I think, on one of those shows, and my parents were watching it. And I, you know, I felt so proud. Here we are, just singing away, and I mean, we were singing to a playback, I guess. And when I got home, I expected my mother to say, "Oh God, you were just great." Instead, she said, "By the way, they panned down to your your foot, and your cuff was inside out." I thought, <laughs> I thought "Oh no, God, please!" Isn't that typical of a parent? Oh. Thanks so a lot, mom. Love me deal. But anyway, um, I don't know what more we can talk about. I mean, I'd love to tell you about anything you want, but... Well, you know what we got into the first time you were on? Yes, there's some time, Bob. The the next host actually asked me, did you know somebody named John King who used to work with Carol Burnett? I don't remember Dancer. that name. I don't. Uh, okay. Carol went off to New York, and uh, I went. I visited her on an occasion much later. And I guess I told you that we were walking down the street and uh, with another guy, and somebody handed us some literature on a yoga demonstration. So we went back to her apartment. It was like ten o'clock at night, and I said, "We've got to, we've got to see this demonstration." And Carol was all for it, whatever it was. She was game. So we called. And the woman said, are you sure you you want to come now? I said, we we got to come now. We really need to, to see what goes on with yoga. So we went over to this apartment in New York where the woman was, and she brought out a young guy who was going to demonstrate some yoga poses for us. I mean, it is silly. <laughs> so he started doing these exercises, and I said, maybe the rug was, or the mat was making some sort of noise, and Carol said, is that you, Fred, which his name was, Fred or the Matt? And all of a sudden they looked at him and they went, oh, my God, I know who you are. You're Carol Burnett. (laughs) It was kind of funny. She's a wonderful girl. She is a true, solid person, no ego in whatever she does. It seems like, you know, the many years that she's been on TV and all that, it always seems like she's just really having fun and she doesn't really care what people think that much. Yeah, I mean, she may care, but she's just, she's never going to be critical of anybody. Yeah. She's just, you know, she was a fine girl. She was living with her sister back hmm. then in New York, and then I don't know what happened to everybody. I, I lost contact with her. I asked her once when she was at CBS if she would do a commercial, uh, one of those, it was a fundraiser kind of commercial for a good cause, and she did it. And that was about the last time I saw her, which was a long time ago, way back when. The last thing we talked about the first time you were on was the fact that you had written the music for Lance Link's Secret Chimp. No, I I thought you were going to play the entire Lance Link's 
score or something. Yes, they've no. reissued it now. Yeah, they just reissued the. I just noticed they reissued the all the shows on DVD in May of this year. I think. Yes, God, I know. Alan was very excited, saying, "Ah, now you're going to really make a lot of money." Well. That may be. I haven't seen any. <laughs> but, but, but but doing the score originally was amazing. That I don't want to go into the details, but because I was a BMI writer, they were every cue was tracked and every song was tracked, and I got I, I, you get so much money that I was I thought it was embarrassing. It seems like they shouldn't pay somebody so much just for doing music. <laughs> I mean, I was happy to have it, but, and as I told you, the funny thing that I have on my piano thing right now is a BMI check for $78 <laughs> for Monsters Hop and Gorilla. They must be, they must have been played in conjunction with like the one you saw. Maybe uh, they have to pay for even if they use it behind a, a YouTube thing, I guess. I, I think so. Maybe that that might be part of the money that goes out of YouTube because there's so much music on it. Um, I did. I actually did play Gorilla when we were when I was trying to recontact you on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you found it somewhere. Yes, that it's also on YouTube. It's if you look for Gorilla and look under Bert Convy, it's there. Oh my God! <laughs> I, I'm glad you told me because I thought I'm going to look it up, and there it was. I don't know who got hold of it, but. There was with the tune was the right one. It was the right one. God, I, it was it was the one you told me about. Yeah, well, I'm, I appreciate the fact that you were kind enough to play all those things. <laughs> well, I had to. I told you I play novelty music and weird stuff when I'm not doing interviews, and I actually have that gorilla song on my iPod, and I didn't know you wrote it. I've had it on my iPod for like three or four years now. Oh, good God. <laughs> I thought it was a dud because we never saw anything from it, or either that or the company really, as I have experienced before, really never, uh, they never report what they play. Because I did a thing with Kenny Rogers, a song called The First Time, and it's on his album, and his album sold a lot of, records but i never saw one penny from it so i don't i don't know how the the accounting goes but i was told accounting is a pretty tricky thing to get into if if they want to not give you credit you never get it yeah well it's like it's well you must know it's like movies all all the creative accounting goes on so you don't get your um percentage or points or whatever well um, that's what happened with tom smothers film uh, you know another nice mess the guy that that helped us through it all, he said, you're never going to see anything. They're going to account all their losses against whatever you yeah. may have done. Yeah. And it was not that big a film anyway. But I've I actually heard of that coming. film. I don't know if I've seen it, but I've actually heard of that film, yeah. Well, it was uh, it was during... That, remember, I, I sent you something about Carruthers and Halderman. Yeah. Somebody had sent that to me, and then I, I really put together at that time they were trying to get a Nixon a better look through either the camera or whatnot, and it was about that time that Carruthers called me at that meeting at the Bank of America presentation, and he he really didn't say very much. He just said, we've got a problem. Uh, if you recommend some good cameramen, 
and I, he never said what it was for, but I began to think, what else could it have been for? Yeah. Because they were talking about Nixon didn't look very good. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, jowly, yeah, was that yeah. the word used. He actually did look like a crook, so, you know. <laughs> no matter how much he said he wasn't. That, that was about... I, I, see, I know Bruce Hershenson, who was an aide to him when the Watergate thing broke out. Yeah. I, I, I grew up with Bruce. And he was in the Air Force with me for, you know, our brief little year. And he was with him during all of those interviews uh, where he was being interviewed on television. He was riding around in the limo with him. Yeah. And I, and I would think that Bruce would have known if he was up to evil things such as he was, somebody said that he was planning to bomb, have us bomb one of the U.S. cities just to cause a war or whatnot. I can't, can't believe he was that type of person. He didn't seem like a crook at all. Well, it's it, a lot of people thought he was, and that apparently that's part of his legacy. But luckily, it, it's... Did you see the Nixon... we got about five minutes here, Bob. Did you see the uh, the uh, Nixon movie that uh, Oliver Stone did? I'm not sure. Was it with an interview, or was it a film on its own? It was a... It was a uh, it was a film on its own, and it was actually Anthony Hopkins as Nixon, and it painted him oh, as a... Oh, no, I didn't see it. But oh, it was... yeah. I don't know if you'd like it. But the funny thing was, it actually it was, you know, it it showed the side that everybody thought, the, the crook side, but it also showed, brought up some of the stuff that people forgotten that he'd done, like the opening up relations with China and um, how he was trying to do the, trying to do what he thought was right, but sometimes that wasn't really right. Come to think of it, I did see that film. Yeah, I didn't respond one way or another uh, to it. But as, as I told you, when we met with Nixon's uh, group to reelect the president, that was the only thing that we talked about was I didn't bring it. If I was just there, you know, I was neutral about the whole thing. I couldn't add anything because they all decided that they'd stress the trip to China and forget about trying to bring in any other subjects, and that's <laughs> what they did, yeah. and it seemed to work. Yeah, I think so. I, do you mind if I... Um, but Did you write the uh, theme to Lancelot Link, or just all the music of the... the when they did the music uh, segments? Uh, now, are you talking about Lancelot Link? Yes. I did all the background music and some of the songs. Is oh, that okay. what your question was? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, but you wouldn't know. Did you do the theme song, the one that they played at the beginning of every show? Yes, that one I had done. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, well, then maybe I'll play that. Um, it was called Evolution Revolution, isn't that it, the one you mean? Uh, yeah, well, that was the name of the band that was always on. Yes, those silly creatures. <laughs> I told you that I, I think I told you that my we brought our daughter to the stage one day when they were shooting those things. I won't repeat it if I already told you. You didn't tell me. And it was, it was up about four, three or four feet high, and she was you know standing on the edge just enjoying the whole thing. And then that's when Lance, uh, we were told that Lance, you don't make eye contact with him, you don't speak with a foreign language, and you shouldn't hold a cup in your hand when you see him. <laughs> This guy did all three, and Lance grabbed him and dumped him upside down. <laughs> My daughter screamed, and the guys with the blackjacks immediately took him aside. You know, you—that was 
so that was kind of like her last impression that Lance was just they're very strong yeah and how that when the when the limousine came up from ABC to see them one day they got out of the limo and the the, uh, the chimps were being paraded toward the studio yeah and Lance jumped on the back of the veterinarian and bit him and the guys in the limousine closed their doors took off and never came back <laughs> So Lance is, yeah, you know, you don't mess around with the chimp. They apparently are five times stronger than a human. Yeah. But yet they look so docile and charming and sweet. Yeah, well, that's the only that's them. the only time you see them. You don't see them going nuts on movies and video. Uh, Bob, no, you don't. So. Yeah. Bob, we have to cut it off cause, um, uh, because the next Bob is coming on with uh, at Another the show. Bob? Yes. I thought I would be the only Bob you had. Well, I you are, but uh, uh, that's on this show. Bob's on the next show, too. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Anyway, it was fun to do. I hope that if you have stuff that you, you want to go back over, we'll do it. It doesn't matter. I, you know, I, I didn't think we'd be able to get two hours out of it anyway. We but, always are uh, able to get two hours of it, Bob. You're always so worried. and it, it, We just start talking, and it, it, it uh, the time goes away. Okay, my friend. I'm, I appreciate the fact that you wanted me on sh your show, and uh, we'll do it again if you want. I'll think of something else. Uh, I do want, and we will do it again soon. Thank you so much, Bob. And I'll talk to you soon in, in any case. Okay, my friend, Greg. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bob Emmenegger, thanks so much for uh, being on, Bob. And uh, I will post this in the next week or so along with last week's show. Meanwhile, here's the uh, Lancelot Link theme that uh, Bob Emmenegger wrote in the, in the uh, early 1970s. Lancelot Link, secret <laughs> gym. But she's wicked all the same old Lance Link What you gonna do when 